What's up, everyone? Welcome to Weekends. Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila with you. Nando, we've got a special show prepped for our audience today. You want to give them a little taste? Yeah, it's been a year since our brother and comrade Michael Brooks passed away. And, you know, I got to say, you know, this was originally his show, his and your show. Um, and, uh, you know, I still feel still feel like a guest in someone else's home um in in the best way possible um so we thought we would we would do a little remembrance um we're gonna have on Leisha Brooks uh Mike's sister um to talk about what she's up to with the Michael Brooks Legacy Project um we're gonna have a couple guys in the Michael Brooks Cinematic Universe Daniel Bessner and Ben Burgess to talk about you know the the wider world of foreign policy um what they're up to the situation in Cuba you know Ben just wrote a uh a Peace and Jack have been reacting to the to the latest uh, round of protests. So, yeah, it's gonna be a it's gonna be a good show. Yeah, definitely. And um, we're going to wrap the show today by sharing some of the videos that we really appreciated from Michael. Um, and you know, it's a very foreign policy heavy show today, which I think makes a lot of sense. Um, while we honor Michael because, you know, in terms of left media in the U.S., no one does it better than Michael does um, or did when it comes to foreign policy related topics. So uh, we're going to get into all of that a little later. But before we get to all of that, Nando, um, you know, it's another year, another opportunity for Obama to share very important content with us in the form of his uh, reading list, I guess, uh, his recommended books and also his mixtape. So why don't we talk about that a little bit? Um, I, it always shocks me that people even care, but I guess they do. Who knows? I mean, there's a reason why they keep doing this, right? Um, but I want to juxtapose that with something that Kale also brought to our attention. So let's get started. Let's talk about it. So there's a new New York Times graphic that details economic inequality in America. Uh, we know that economic inequality exists. Unfortunately, during the coronavirus pandemic, it was further exacerbated with the wealthiest individuals hoarding additional wealth, um, while poor people, of course, uh, working people uh, had to bear the economic burdens and brunt of uh, this pandemic. With that said, let's take a quick look at that graphic because it shows you a little of, um, you know, what's covered in this article. Uh, so scroll down. Okay. Conventional wisdom. There we go. So you see that graphic and it sh shows the share of net worth. By the start of 2021, the richest 1% of Americans held 32% of the nation's wealth. Sounds great. It's highest level, uh, since, uh, highest level since these records began in 1989. These interactive, you know, graphics are yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> the bottom 50%, meanwhile, held just 2% of the nation's wealth. Uh, this new that's the game right comes. there. That's yeah. the game right there, right? Yep. Like, that's everything. I mean, is there anything else even worth talking about? I mean, we fight about all this stuff, and that's the thing. I remember, I'll never forget when Obama, Comrade Obama, um, got up there and said that economic inequality was the defining issue of our time, um, as if he wasn't elected on a wave of discontent uh, that was fueled by both our disastrous wars abroad, but up, more importantly, the economic meltdown caused by the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, running on a platform of hope and change, this is going to change. We're going to change this. 
we're gonna change this reality. And not only did he not change it, he probably supercharged it. Yeah, I mean, and, and I want everyone to kind of keep this information, this data in mind as we talk about other topics throughout the show today, because, you know, there's calls for regime change in Cuba, uh, and we're going to mm. get into that in more detail. And the whole argument by Cubans in South Florida, especially, is that, you know, it's a, it's a failed economic system. Socialism is a failed economic system, and that's why Cubans are taking to the streets. I mean, you look at that graph and are you going to argue that we don't have a failed economic system in place (laughs) where during a global pandemic, the richest people continue to hoard the wealth, continue to get even richer while working Americans lose more and more and more? I mean, the situation continues to devolve under a capitalistic model, right? And and anyway, it's super frustrating. Um, yeah, I mean, I just I love the idea like of Cuba's failed economic model and like no mention of like the other big country that's in the news. I did my decode on it last week um, is Haiti. Um, yeah. Capitalist economy, uh, un, you know, total U.S. client state or not U.S. client state, U.S. kind of under U.S. domination uh, for decades. Uh, poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, extreme yeah. levels of inequality, corruption. Um, poverty, all the things you, you can that you can attribute with that. And no one says it's a failure of their economics model. No one. No. It's it's just, it's incredible. So It's just that there's corruption, you know, that's the only thing, you know. So you have Obama saying that, you know, inequality is, is such an important issue that, you know, he apparently had no control over as the most powerful man in the world, not for four years, but for eight years straight. Um, But let's just forget about all of that. And let's focus on what Obama is reading and what kind of music he's (laughs) listening to. This these lists come out every ever so often. I don't know if it's every year. I usually ignore it because I don't care. Um, But why don't we talk a little bit about what books he's recommending? Um, So there we go. Uh, Barack Obama's summer reading list. This was posted on his Instagram page. Um, A night uh, at night. All blood is black. Mm-hmm. Have you read any of these books, Nando? No, 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 no. I have not read any of them. Um, I, I don't. I know that Obama hasn't read them either. I mean, that's my big thing with, especially Obama's reading lists, because they're always so long. Like, I'll never forget. I'll, like, I got and I got in a fight with a couple people at the place that I was working at because I tweeted out um, in 2019 um, that because Obama tweeted out like a list of all the books he'd read, including one called Surveillance Capitalism by. Uh, uh, Shoshana Zuboff, I think. And it's like this huge, like huge dense book that there's just like mm-hmm. a 0% chance that he sat down and read, you know, because he's Obama, you know, he, he's got busy doing other stuff. He's just like the amount of books that were on his list and not, not like the, all the books he's read in the year, just his favorite ones implying that yeah. there was many more that he read, which did not make the list. You know, there were something like 30 books on there. And I just like, I know Obama is not reading three books a month. Like, I know he's not reading a book a week. Like, this is his staff, you know, uh, curating a list. Yes. In a perfect way that kind of is both ideologically kind of samples a little bit from this side, a little bit from that side, shows that he's, like, not beholden to any one thing, but is also crucially gender, like, perfect, you know, and that it's, like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not, like, all white men or anything like that. Like, he needs, needs like, an appropriate... um, 
kind of uh, uh, panoply of different races and genders to to ensure that there's like a certain amount of inclusivity. Like I guarantee you, they're like, oh, this week's uh, this year's reading list, Obama. You got too many white men on it. You gotta. You gotta, you gotta find, you gotta, you gotta dump these two and put some other two because, like, how is that gonna look? Like, it's just, it's so, it's just so obvious that this is all fake. That this is just all fake. That this is just not really what he reads or liked. That it's just a produced, manufactured thing to make him seem like he's the kind of guy that liberals want to believe he is. This kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, media savvy, urbane guy who reads the same thing that they do, but slightly at a higher level, you know, like slightly, you know, the slightly more difficult books than they read, but like kind of in the same world, watches the same TV shows that you watch, you know, um, Mm -hmm. engages with the same media. Just like us. Just like us, because that's all we got in politics, baby. It's all just media. And 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 not just that, but it's just so infantilizing. Like the media culture that we have is so infantilizing these days in which everything has to be like perfectly on the nose. Like this person is good. That person is bad. And he is, he is participating that and and regurgitating it back to us in such a obviously cynical way. And people just lap it up. They lap it up. They love it. The liberals, they love it. And it just drives me crazy. But do okay. So when you say the liberals, because I got to be honest with you, do ordinary people, even those who self-identify as liberals, care at all? Because, I mean, I, I'm obviously speaking from my own personal bias here. I'm not. I don't identify as a liberal, but nonetheless, like I don't care, right? Like these lists come out, and I just kind of like I don't even look at it ever, uh, with the exception of this show, because we're talking about it right now. Like, who cares? Ordinary people well, don't care. I mean, I wouldn't call, I wouldn't say like ordinary people, but people that are very invested in kind of the Democratic Party, the kind of people that have like a Ruth Bader Ginsburg poster on their wall or whatever, you know, like those people care about that stuff. They really do. Um, and Obama is very good at managing his image and celebrity. Um, and if it didn't matter and nobody cared, he wouldn't do it because he's pretty he is pretty savvy in that sense. Like he understands the audience that he's playing to. You're not that audience. Like you're, just, you're yeah, not that true. person. <laughs> but the kind of person who like loves MSNBC and like subscribes to The New York Times because like that's like, you know, fighting against fascism. Um, that's how you do it. You subscribe to The New York Times. Um, <laughs> you know, like that kind of person like loves that shit. They love it. They, they love it. They love it. And, and you know, you see people like on Twitter, like, you know, the kind of liberal partisan, you know, consent manufacturers debating Obama's reading list in a kind of serious way. Like as if they were like, oh, look, he's, you know, like he's read this. That means he's grappling with so-and-so's ideas about whatever the fuck. And I'm like, you're an idiot. You're like maybe a staffer read it and just gave him like a, a two paragraph synopsis in case anyone asked him about it at a party. And he could just like say the two things that kind of indicated that he read it, you know, but it's just such obvious bullshit. I don't know. Yeah. Um, well, don't worry. Um, he also released a list of songs that he likes uh, in his yeah. playlist. So let's I mean, I might be more familiar with uh, some of. The yeah. Stuff no, not not. Re- I know Desperado. OK, got that. Yeah. Um, Migos, Rihanna, you know, uh, the Rolling Stones. Again, see, he like is the perfect. It's just like the perfect, you know, Miles Davis, you know, Bob Marley mm-hmm. and the Whalers. Ooh, you know, like it's just the perfect mix of like. Uh, you know, I'm I'm signaling that I'm still kind of young and with it, 
Um, but I'm also like a boomer and I like my boomer stuff. Um, I also like like Erica Badu, you know, like I still listen to, to, to I, I don't know. It's all just so obviously perfectly manufactured and curated. Like, I'm, you know, thinking about Mike, I'm just like trying to imagine mm-hmm. Mike, you know, doing like parodying Obama's summer playlist and like what it would be like Nation of Islam Obama's like summer playlist and reading, <laughs> reading list. <laughs> you know, and like, like totally. what would he be like? You're like, I was not on WA. Fuck the police. I don't agree with defund the police, but, uh, you know. <laughs> oh my God. It's so, it's so true. By the way, um, there is a reading list with, I think about a hundred books that, um, Matt Leck and David Griscom, uh, and I believe Leisha, his sister, released after he passed away. Highly recommend checking out the books in that list. Mm. Of course, he was on point, and he actually did read those books and would yes. vouch for them. Um, and so to wrap up this story or this segment, why don't we share a book that's had a lot of influence on us, right, politically speaking, or a book that you know, we think is worth reading. Um, there's so many, obviously, po- with, with politics, there's so many different angles to cover. Shock Doctrine, I think, is a essential read for everyone, especially right now in understanding why it's so disastrous for the United States to intervene militarily or anyway, like in, in attempting to like topple a regime. It's anyway, so there's that. But I would say for me, like the most, the book that I think about a lot lately um, is Brightsided. And I know I've plugged that book a lot on this show, but Brightsided by Barbara Ehrenreich. Yeah. It's just such an important book in understanding the culture around us, right? The corporate culture, but more importantly, like this culture of like faux positivity and how it's meant to like make you submissive to this system that's screwing you, you know? And Barbara, come on the show. I want to interview interview you so badly. I would love it. Um, but please read Bright Sided. It's one of my favorite books. Um, I recommend to everyone that they read Eric Hobsbawm's uh, kind of history of the, um, you know, starting from the uh, essentially the French Revolution through through the end of the Cold War, especially um, the final one, which is called Age of Extremes. Uh, I believe it's called like the Age of Extremes, uh, the, the, a history of the short 20th, what he calls the short 20th century. Um, like, you know, in, in, Hob- in Hobsbawm's um, view, like the 20th century starts with the Russian Revolution and ends with the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. Um, and it's just, a, just a history of the world during that period, like all of it, you know. He takes like mm-hmm. a, you know, it's, it's a tour, to, you know, all over the world. Um, kind of goes through the, the, two, the world, the end of the first world war, um, and, uh, and the second world war. And, but like just a history of, of all of it. And it's just so breathtakingly coherent. It, 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 you know, like his command of, of, of just all of it is, is, is incredible. And he's just a very fun writer. Like he has, he had a very good, good writing style like he had this kind of like just such a way like a, these clever turns of phrases i don't know like if you want to just like understand history and you have to read like one book um not like mm-hmm. specifically about american history like i mean with american history i always recommend the robert caro books um and yes you, you've read them but huge um, fan they were great i mean they're just they're like and they're like they're addicting you like just can't stop reading them but uh the the Hobsbawm books uh, I really recommend, especially, especially, especially um, the last one, Age of Extremes. I mean, you know, he has the Age of Re- uh, the Age of Revolution, which is like you know French Revolution and the uh, you know the revolutions of, of eighteen thirty and eighteen forty eight. Um, 
the age of capital, um, which is when like capital capitalism really kind of kind of took hold uh, in Europe and, and in America and imposed itself. And then the age of empire, which was when Europe kind of took over the rest of, of the world. And then, uh, um, or Britain in capitalism really took over the rest of the world. And then, uh, and then the age of extremes, which is the, you know, the, the 20th century, which is just the most remarkable century, you know, you can, so yeah, Eric Hobsbawm's books, I, I, I recommend a lot. I'm just to jump in. This is like super nerdy, but uh, Age of Revolution is actually my anticipated uh, book read <laughs> next week. Um, oh, so you haven't read the, it on the beach? No, I haven't. I've been meaning to read Hobbsbaum. I mean, I've read a. a Have you read books. any of the other, any of those other ones? No, none on the series. I've read some of his other works. So, like uh, Nations and Nationalism is one of the most incredible books I've ever read. Um, so I'll throw that one in another. He's like a good, like he's, he's, he's a good writer. Like, I mean, apart from being a good historian, you know, or like he's the best like, historian. Kale, this is maybe, maybe we can read that book together. Like we've been talking about doing like a book club type situation, um, but we haven't really like settled on a book. Maybe this is it. Maybe this is what we do. Do some Hobbsbaum. That would rule. Yeah, we yeah. should. I mean, we, we should just do a Jacobin book club. I mean, we should do it. But then you, the audience, should also read it. Yeah. So you we read it participate. and then let us know what you think. And yeah. we'll, somehow we'll all morph into one eventually. Um, <laughs> I wanted to just, before we go on to the next thing, I did want to go back to that New York Times graph one more time, actually, just because there's, back. A, there's one more thing at the end that I think is really worth looking at, which is that um, that since the start of 2020, the bottom 50% of the population gained $700 billion in wealth, which... Cool. That's great. Uh, but uh, it's nothing in the same compared period, to the wealthy. Yeah. The richest 1% yeah. gained 10 trillion. So, 10 trillion. Uh, <laughs> Come on down. Congratulations. Yeah. You did it. Yeah. Um, that's, amazing. Uh, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're back into age of capital. Um, yes. And, uh, so anyways, markets are rational. I mean, the markets have decided that, all that wealth should float all the way to the top. <laughs> That's just the way it works. Yeah. Much better system than uh, what you see in other countries like Cuba, you know. Anyway. Yeah, so, um, so read, read Obama's fiction. That's, that's, <laughs> that's how you should handle it. I was yeah. surprised that in Obama's uh, podcast list, he included Cumbtown. I'm, I'm glad he was looking out for, for the Cumbtown fans. Get out that's of here. That's not real. That's not real. Okay, right, here you go. Get the hell out of here. <laughs> Let's get the hell out of here. Like the bad jokes. Yeah. <laughs> I listen to Chop on Trump right. House because I want to hear the other side. You know, that's, uh, that's what I do. <laughs> All right, Nando. Well, um, one place where people can get books is over at the Verso Book Club. So yes. why don't you tell our audience a little about that? Yes. Ditch Obama's reading list and join the Verso reading list. Because if you join the Verso Book Club, you get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one or more books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off everything on the website, including the Verso Conrad tote bag, for as long as you are a subscriber. Each member tier is 50% off for your first three months. The Conrad tier is only $20 a month. And if you join in July, you'll get these four books. One Way Street and Other Writings by Walter Benjamin, Feminist Anti-Fascism, Counterpublics of the Common by Eva Majewska, The Great Adaptation, Climate, Capitalism, and Catastrophe by Romain, Romain Feli, and The Tragedy of the Worker Towards the Proletaricine by Jamie Allenson, China Mieville, Richard Seymour, friend of the show, and Rosie Warren. 
Very nice. Very nice. Everyone check out Verso um, and uh, check out the interview we're about to do with our good friend Ben Burgess, host of Give Them an Argument. He's about to give us an argument about the situation in Cuba. Ben, how are you? I am really good, Anna. How are you? Doing well, doing well. Um, Thanks for joining us, uh, especially uh, to discuss an important topic that you wrote about in Jacobin. Um, There's a protest currently going down in Cuba. Uh, The piece that we're referring to is titled, The U.S. Must End Its Brutal Sanctions Against Cuba, Not Intervene There. And I appreciated your piece. Uh, in fact, I read a few excerpts of it from uh, on the Young Turks today because I think you made really great arguments about Haiti. Um, so before we get into that, though, why don't you give us just a quick, I guess, summary of, of what your main argument is here? Yeah. And this is, uh, I should say, by the way, this is really inappropriate because we're about to talk about something that's serious and important for the last couple of minutes. All I've been able to think about is the Obama podcast list where he includes come town. Like the, yeah. you, know, you know, like, like you could like the same principle that I wouldn't okay, want gonna, Sasha and Malia to listen to it, but they're all right. <laughs> he's going to talk about like current music to show that he's hip, but he'll also include tumbling dice from exile and mainstream, you know, say, so, yeah. look, I mean, I listen, I listen to pod, pod save America, but you know, sometimes yeah. you just want to hear about being gay with your dad, you know, they're, they're so, yeah. <laughs> <My God. laughs> uh, but, um, but I will say, in all seriousness, one thing that Obama did uh, that is good, which is not a segue off and start sentences, is uh, <laughs> that uh, he did uh, he did try to open up diplomatically to Cuba just a little bit uh, towards the end of his second term. Uh, you know, he actually went to Cuba and did some things that he could do uh, unilaterally to uh, to loosen up. Uh, restrictions on uh, what U.S. citizens could do in Cuba. A lot of it he couldn't do without congressional authorization. And then Donald Trump um, reversed all of that. Uh, Trump, who, you know, some very gullible people thought was going to, uh, you know, be anti-imperialist in some sort of weird right-wing isolationist way, uh, was, of course, the exact opposite of that. Uh, he was uh, he was much more hawkish uh, than the previous administration in almost every category and uh, definitely including Cuba. Uh, and he tightened up restrictions a lot uh, when, uh, when, you know, when he came to, uh, came to office uh, and Biden, unfortunately, since coming to office, hasn't loosened them back up again. You know, he's made no effort to go back to that diplomatic opening to Cuba that happened under Obama and the combination of this what already is a very unnatural situation that uh, Cuba has been under some level or another a trade embargo with this giant piece of the world economy that's represented by the United States and obviously Cuba's now largest natural trading partner since the Kennedy administration. But you place on top of that this worldwide pandemic that shut down their tourism industry, which is a huge part of the Cuban economy. Uh, and that was shut down for, for a year. I mean, they've only just started to, uh, to reopen it, you know, very recently. Uh, and, uh, the combination of, of those things has been absolutely brutal. And so Cubans have been experiencing lots of shortages more than usual of, you know, food, medicine, you know, they've been trying really hard to get people the COVID vaccine, but that also means that there are trade-offs there and there are other kinds of medicine that they can't import, uh, and uh, power, there have been power outages, and all of these shortages have sparked a lot of frustration and uh, and 
by Cuban standards, at least, big street protests. Um, not as big as it happened in other countries in Latin America, which is a point we should make because, uh, you know, because two days of protests in Cuba get massive international news coverage and months of protests in some other Latin American countries uh, get a tiny fraction of, of that. But by Cuban standards, very big protests. Uh, and this, in turn, has led some politicians uh, like... Um, the mayor of Miami, for example, uh, who are, one of uh, my best, one of my favorite guys, just a gr- just like he's awful, uh, awful, he's like, absolutely he's, awful. In fact, he's exactly what my video. city deserves. So we've got video of him, you know, talking about the protests in Cuba, but more importantly, what he believes needs to be done in response to the Cuban government. Um, so we have two clips. The first yeah. addresses the sanctions that you refer to, Ben. Let's watch that, and I want to get a response yeah. from you. let's do it. Ben Rhodes, who, of course, was national security advisor to President Obama, tweeted this. The Cuban people suffer doubly from a repressive government and a cruel U.S. embargo. They deserve policies that empower them and help them improve their lives. Do you think that President Biden, looking at this situation, will lift that embargo? And do you think that's what he should do? No, I don't think the embargo is is cruel at all. And I think that the Cuban people are not asking for a lifting of the embargo. They're going out in the streets every single day talking about the failure of the communist regime to provide for its people. His Miami accent is just so thick. It's crazy. They're like going out on the streets talking about the communist regime. Okay, not the sanctions, bro. Like, is that what they're talking about? Yeah, some one thing that Nando and I have in common is we both used to live in Miami, uh, and and I think we we probably both knew a lot of guys who sounded just like that. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean that's um, I mean this is incredibly disingenuous, and there's a really easy way that you can tell that it's incredibly disingenuous, which is that like what we just saw, pick right. It can't be both. Either. Mm-hmm. It's really important to keep the embargo in place as a pressure tactic to get this horrible, evil, tyrannical regime to change its ways, or uh, the embargo is just an excuse and really all of the shortages are just a result of flaws in Cuba's economic systems, because both of those can't be true. If it's not having a big effect on the Cuban economy, what's the point of the embargo? Yeah. Um, Can I I just... Go ahead, Nando. Sorry, I just... I want... I just wanted to elaborate a little more on the sanctions because uh, there is a common talking point among supporters of basically toppling the government in Cuba. And they argue that, like, the sanctions are not that big of a deal because it just uh, prevents trade and travel between Cuba and the United States. That no, is not true. It does way so more than what, that. It does way more than that. And, and the, the embargo and the sanctions were bad prior to Obama lifting a few of them, like loosening up uh, the embargo. However, Trump not only re-implemented those sanctions, but he tightened those sanctions even further. So uh, Cuba is considered a state sponsor of terrorism as a result of what Trump did. And so what does that do? It prevents international banks from doing business or or financing uh, the Cuban government in any way because they're worried about retaliation from the United States. Think about it. If you're a bank and you're thinking about doing business with Cuba, but the United States, a hegemon, <laughs> refers to Cuba as a state sponsor of terrorism, you're probably going to be a little scared to do business with Cuba, right? So it really has hurt them economically. Um, and what 
further compounded it was the coronavirus pandemic and how it um, basically did away with one of the main sources of revenue for the country, which is, of course, tourism. So Cuba is in a terrible place. The United States certainly has a big role in that. And, uh, you know, to to pretend as though uh, the sanctions are not a big deal, I think, is ridiculous. But I think lifting the sanctions is the only thing the U.S. government can and should do. No, um, that, but anyways, totally. Well, yeah, that, I, I mean, there, I think this. this well, I was, I was going to no, say go the talking point that you that you hear a lot that says, uh, "Oh, but they they can trade with Canada, they can trade with Europe." So, like, what's the big deal, you know, about the United States? First of all, that means that anything's produced in the United States, which is like a massive amount of uh, of what you know exists in the world economy, uh, you know, you can't get in Cuba. Uh, then that state sponsor of terrorism designation, which, by the way, like if you look at the official justification for putting Cuba on the state sponsors of terrorism list, which is something the Trump administration did like at the last minute. I mean, that was something that kind of did in between filing nuisance lawsuits to yeah. try to overturn the election. And uh, they, the stated justification for that uh, was basically that, um, you know, Cuba – and Colombia and, you know, other countries, but I think Colombia primarily, uh, you know, don't have extradition treaties. There are people who are accused of things in uh, in Colombia uh, who are in Cuba and can't be extradited back. But, I mean, just not having an extradition treaty cannot possibly be good enough to make you a state sponsor of terrorism. And if it did, then the United States, I mean, how many people who've uh, committed bombings and assassinations and hijackings, uh, in Cuba have lived openly in Miami since then. I mean, that would more than cut both ways. What they say is that like Cuban spies are all over Latin America. Like they, they make the Cuban spy uh, apparatus out to be like, you know, these like James Bond level guys who are all over Latin America working with like the Venezuelans and stuff like that to like undermine everything. I mean, that's like what they say. But what I, what I found remarkable about this round of protests is that like, Contrary to other flare-ups in in Cuba, is that a lot of the a lot of the you know more hardline Cuban elements are kind of saying the, the the quiet part out loud that they didn't always used to say. I mean, always there's always like the most insane people that would that would say like you know Newcom, but like the 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 mayor of Miami kind of went there <laughs> in a way that that others don't uh, that others didn't in the past because like you know obviously like. The question is like, okay, what is okay? Say, say, say it's you're right. They're awful. The the Castros are the worst. They're the worst people. What do we do about it, huh? Well, we already do the sanctions. What do we do about it? Let's hear it from Mr. Mayor. Yeah, let's hear it. And what should be being contemplated right now is a coalition a potential military action in Cuba, similar to what has happened in both administrations, in both Republican and Democrat administrations, in Republican with Bush in Panama, they deposed Noriega, and that country had peaceful democracy for decades. And you had interventions by by Democratic presidents, uh, you know, taking out Osama bin Laden in Pakistan. It's a, a sovereign country where they took out a, a, a terrorist that probably saved thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of lives, and President Clinton in Kosovo intervening in a humanitarian issue uh, with airstrikes. So there have been many, many opportunities uh, in the history of... Are you suggesting airstrikes in Cuba? What I'm suggesting is that that option is one that has to be explored Mm -hmm. and cannot be uh, just simply discarded as, as an option that is not on the table. 
Jesus. Insane. It's a military coalition, Absolutely. all right, bro? Like, you do, like, a coalition of military stuff, okay, bro? And then you die, and then you bomb them, and then you get them out of there, bro. We've done it before. We've done it before. We did it, like, we did it in Iraq. We did it in, in, in all over the place, bro, and it was fine, okay? Like, why Why didn't anyone complain then? <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I, so, I mean, I, I do want to say, like, I don't think we should assume... Like some people, lots of people in the United States have like the typical sort of Americans watching international news disease, which is that uh, they watch 90 seconds of news footage and then they have like a complete read on the situation and who's right and who's wrong yeah. and all of that stuff. And uh, there's obviously lots of that going on on, uh, on the right, you know, crazy right wing anti-communist uh, Cubans in Miami who are sure that anybody who's in the street must agree with them about everything, you know, and, uh, and I think you probably, you also get some of it on, on the left that, you know, that people, I think some people are a little bit too quick to assume that everybody who's frustrated by shortages, who might have one complaint or another about the government might be protesting is like a CIA agent or something, right? Like, I don't mm-hmm. think we should do that. Uh, they, I, I'm sure like, I don't, I think it's way too early to know anything really about the politics of different people protests. I'm sure there's lots of different factions, lots of different agendas. And also like that's, you know, what happens in Cuba should be the, for the Cubans to figure out the United States doesn't need exactly. to, to have a vote, well, in, you know, in what exactly. And who are internally. we, who are we, by the way, and who's the, who's the Miami mayor? He's the to best, say is what, what he the is. governing situation should be in Cuba, you bro, uh, bro, like language you can maybe understand. You just had a building in Miami collapse. You yeah. have other buildings in Miami where people are literally evacuating because they're in, they're poorly built and about to collapse. I mean, really, do we have any place right now to tell the Cuban people what's best for them? As we're experiencing like record inequality in the country, we're watching our infrastructure fall apart. Like we're not really a good example of an economic system that works. No. So for us to say like yeah. we should topple this government and destabilize this country is disgusting. Well, and also, ridiculous. also what, notice what, what, that what he's he's talking about like uh, U.S. intervention. His Latin America example, he has to go back to 1989 uh, to uh, to Panama because he's certainly not going to bring up uh, the. Um, the 2004 intervention when uh, U.S. Marines uh, kidnapped the president of Haiti, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, and you know took him out of the mm. country uh, to impose a new one because obviously Haiti is uh, ha- undergone you know like continuously like dystopian levels of poverty and economic inequality and instability. The president of Haiti was just assassinated. This clearly did not lead to any sort of stable democracy in Haiti. Uh, he's certainly not going to bring up Honduras uh, where there was a U.S. back <laughs> yeah. in 2009. Uh, he's, uh, he's not, uh, He's not going to. Uh, he's not going to bring up you know, Libya. Libya. You know, he's not going to bring up Libya. But the so. But the, the thing is that what I was I was texting with a, a, a journalist named David Quinones out of out of Miami. He hosts something called the Bird Road Podcast, which is like a Miami uh, centric podcast. And and he was pointing out that like you know there there are protests on the street. Um, there is there is probably a lot of genuine discontent. 
there is probably also like you know astroturfing and, oh, sure. and Twitter bots and all that stuff like because which has happened in Brazil, which has happened in Mexico, which has happened in Bolivia, which has happened everywhere. It's like super proven and documented. Plus, the United States in Cuba has a huge record of this kind of thing, like creating their own version of Twitter and things like that, like a CIA Twitter <laughs> in Cuba. But uh, but but there is probably some genuine discontent. But there was also massive counter protests, much like would occur here in the United States, like when there was like a Tea Party protest, and then there's like some other group of protesters who are like against the Tea Party protesters, and like so there's a massive counter protest kind of supporting the government. And the picture that everyone is using, and that was in that Fox News clip of the people climbing up the the statue, is actually an image of the counter protest. There's a guy holding up the twenty the twenty de Julio uh, movement flag, the red and black flag, which was like the vanguard uh, of you know faction of Fidel Castro from like the, you know, the, the guys who came down from the mountains, yeah, uh, you know, myself, like yeah. that was a counter protest to the protests, which are being covered. And it's just being treated well, of as, course, of course, of course. Cause I mean, cause it's, it's like this, it's people have this like black and white, like cartoon in their heads of like, uh, you know, Oh, see, you know, Cubans, you know, want freedom and, uh, and, and they like, uh, you know, they want to restore what we all saw in Godfather to, you know, to, uh, to Cuba. Uh, but of course, like Cuba is a complex society, like any other society that you have like different political factions. You absolutely have like, you know, super right wing elements, of the Catholic church and people who are aligned with Miami exiles and people who really are connected to the CIA. Uh, and you have people who, you know, you have a huge popular base of support that's still loyal to uh, the government. You have people who maybe like Castro, but aren't crazy about the current guy or basically want to maintain the system they have now in Cuba, but want some reforms. It's going to be a whole spectrum like you'd have anywhere. Uh, but the, the overwhelming point I think that we need to make is just a really simple one, which is that the United States shouldn't get to decide who wins. Like, well, no, like and- yes. What, what, and what that the happened? immediate thing that has to happen is is to end the United States's basically war on Cuba that has been going on for decades. And like then we'll see what happens. Like no, then we no, can debate right? about the government no. or whatever. But like it's, any it's, presupposition like has to be that to end any American intervention in Cuba, which it's not like it it is happening right now. Like it's exactly. it has been happening for decades. Like that is the that is the first step that has to happen before anything can be even remotely yeah. discussed about the merits of this government or, or its faults no, or, no, its, no. or its, or it's, you know, because exactly. it's crazy that, that that's not the, yeah. the, the thing. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. I mean, like this, this, the thing, like people will say, Oh, but if we end the embargo, then, you know, what's the incentive Cuba to change, whatever, what changes or doesn't change in Cuba has should have nothing to do with us. Right. This should be entirely for Cubans to decide what the future of their country uh, is uh, is like. Uh, There's absolutely no reason the United States should get to influence that. And uh, and the other thing, you know, like like the crucial point is that uh, if you want to help, like the thing that immediately sparked these protests were the shortages. Like everybody agrees on that. Whatever else is true, you know, like that was like the immediate spark. And if you want to do something to alleviate the shortages, there's exactly one thing that the United States can do. uh, And it's exactly the opposite of what the mayor of Miami is talking about. Uh, It's exactly the opposite of what Val Demings, who's a Democratic congresswoman from uh, from Florida, uh, is talking about. 
Yes, the uh, says the White House must move swiftly. I don't know what that means, but it doesn't sound good uh, that the United States, you know, the like White House should be doing something to guarantee, quote unquote, freedom in uh, in Cuba. And we can look at all of the countries where I mean, we just listed off a bunch of Latin American countries where there were U.S. backed coups. But like what the mayor of Miami is talking about is more than that. It's airstrikes. It's maybe even invasion like Panama. (laughs) And look at the recent track record of that. I mean, the uh, I mean, we're 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 in the 20th year of uh, of the forever war in Afghanistan. Uh, The ripple effects of the invasion of Iraq are still leading to like waves of bloodshed and chaos uh, in the Middle East. Uh, Libya was turned into a failed state by, you know, U.S., airstrikes and you know proxies you know overthrowing uh the uh, the government there like the track record of this makes it just amazing that anybody thinks that cuba would be this like stable prosperous democracy uh if the u.s got its way but again like whether cuba keeps its current system or has different systems should not be up to the united states but if we if we want to do something to help the shortages that have immediately sparked the protest, just lift the embargo. And it's, it's ridiculous people pretending, you know, that, uh, that, Oh, you know, this embargo, that's just an excuse that really doesn't make a, you know, big, uh, big difference because the whole point of having an embargo is to bring about this exact thing. And that's explicit. I mean, you can go back and look at like, even before Kennedy actually uh, signed this in when uh, Eisenhower was initially considering imposing sanctions on Cuba, there's a quote from Eisenhower's in The Guardian today uh, where he said, well, if the people are hungry, they'll throw out Castro. I mean, that, that, that's, <laughs> that was the explicit reasoning for doing this in the first place. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good well, point. And, and, and like, one other – go ahead, ahead, Nando. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to mention um, the recent change in leadership in Cuba uh, because – I don't know. I mean, I'm speculating, so I want to be clear about that. But, you know, some of my concern is that Cuba is in a particularly vulnerable position because of this new president who uh, was not part of the Cuban Revolution, um, you know, uh, uh, of the Cubans who are very supportive of the communist government. um, You know, they have a lot of respect and admiration for the Castros because of what they did in, in, you know, pushing for this revolution that wasn't a, a result of like the Soviet Union right. coming in and, and making it happen. Right. It was it was a popular movement. Um, and now you have this uh, new leadership. And I'm wondering if there's like and obviously we're speculating, but if there's like this maybe air of distrust toward him. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I worry that that's also part of the equation and that some bad actors, internationally speaking, are going to use it to their advantage to, to try to topple the government. No, I think that's I think that's right. Like, I think that Fidel Castro had tremendous personal popularity, Raul probably a little less so, and the current guy a lot less because he's not connected to that. But But like, in terms of what, you know, just to go back one more time uh, to that lunatic mayor, uh, what he's talking about, you know, doing airstrikes and, you know, some sort of military, you know, the, the military coalition uh, to uh, to topple uh, the, uh, the Cuban government. Like the fact that Cuba's system was not imposed by Soviet troops like Eastern Europe, that it came about as a result of a popular revolution is really important to emphasize. Because realistically, what that means is as bad as some of these other interventions have been by the United States, uh, if, if 
like Biden was insane enough to listen to this advice from the mayor of Miami, from Val Demings, from other people, like that would be a thousand times worse than some of these other interventions. Like that would be like the war Vietnam because uh, if the United States was actually going to militarily intervene to try to topple a country that was brought about by a popular revolution that still has a huge base of support, like what do you think all the like communists in Cuba are going to do? Right. If, uh, if, if the uh, United States empire comes in there and tries to, tries to get rid of their system system by force. I mean, you know, do you think that this stu- like whatever percentage of the population you think it is, it's still a big one, right? You know, do you think that uh do you think that Cuban communists would would take that lying down or do you think that they'd like take up arms and you know do what they did to take power in the first place and then that could be like I mean, like that that could that could really be bad on the level of US involvement in Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia in the 70s. No, absolutely, and I mean it's 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 all the same thing. The same thing that was going on when when Venezuela was 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 in you know going through uh, tremendous economic hardships, and there were you know protests on the street because there were massive shortages uh, because the price of oil collapsed, and you know a million other reasons. Also, mismanagement from the from the Maduro government, you know, a million other reasons. Um, and it's like you saw like like the new kind of the the young bucks on the scene in Miami are the Venezuelan diaspora um, or exile community, as they call themselves. Um, and, uh, you know, and it's like, well, what do you like? You know, like I'm like, well, what, what are you going to do about it? You know, and like they 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 often advocate like military intervention. They don't you know, they would never, ever like lift up the economic sanctions. Like if if you want to help those people in Venezuela, like the first thing you do is lift the economic sanctions. You know, like if there's shortages, lift the sanctions, bro. Like that's the first thing that's going to that's that's what's going to help these people, you know, because because you don't like the guy that's never considered like like it's always the way uh, I mean. I'm going to talk to Danny Bestner later on this, a very Bestner-esque point, but I mean, like the way that we always talk about helping people who are experiencing some sort of civil war or economic crisis or whatever in other countries, it's always framed as either we, you know, help them by bombing them uh, or we just don't do anything, right? Like, and there are usually lots of things that the United States is a, you know, rich and powerful country could do that aren't those two things. I mean, we could, um, I mean, in a case like Cuba or Venezuela, yeah, just stop intervening there to try to strangle the economies of those countries. That would be huge. In other cases, you know, we can take in refugees. That's doing something. We can send like uh, medical aid. That's doing something, uh, which, you know, which way I mean, would be, uh, the least we can do in the uh, in the Cuba case because they constantly send medical aid all around the world. Yes, exactly. And, you know, I guess the final thing I'll say about this is, you know, so our good friend, uh, Professor Wolf, uh, does really great segments about, you know, just updates on what's happening internationally. And and one of his podcast episodes that I really enjoyed was about how Cuba was actually opening up its economy, um, not to multinational corporations, like that would be a bad thing, but opening up um, the ability for workers to own the companies they work for, right? So worker co-ops. And that's like exciting stuff. And I, I mentioned that because my feeling is the Cuban diaspora is much less concerned about the well-being of Cuban citizens 
and just far more interested in toppling that government because of their unending bitterness and grudge over what happened in the 1950s. Like, I just think if you do care about the well-being of the Cuban people, then yeah, you'd listen to what their concerns are right now regarding the shortages and you would help to alleviate that. But they don't want to do that. They want to keep the sanctions in place. They want to crush the Cuban people to the point where they're so desperate that there's an uprising and they topple the government. That's the whole point of the sanctions. And the United States has no business intervening in any way, uh, certainly not militarily or with these kinds of sanctions. They should be lifted. That's the only role the U.S. should play. And by the way, Biden campaigned on that. Biden, who had all these negative things to say about Trump, decided to continue with many of Trump's disastrous, broken foreign policies. Because he lost um, and, Florida. Yeah, who cares? They're not, not going to vote for you, Biden. And they lost like, Florida Cubans anyway. and Venezuelans. But matter. that's, what he, that's, not, that's exactly, the calculus. Exactly. That's, he's like, they're, they're like, we lost Florida because of that. And so that's that's the calculus. I mean, it's, it's, that, which was, it's that. Which was so intensely frustrating because, like, back in uh, – early 2020, you know, that, uh, like, man, that was just last year, right? Okay. Yes. Back in early 2020, <laughs> tried to, uh, to, to make it this big thing. It's like, Ooh, uh, Bernie Sanders has been winning everything, but, uh, he can't be the nominee because, uh, cause, cause look at him, uh, making these statements where he'd say like two critical things about Cuba and also like praise their legitimate accomplishments, uh, that, you know, that he, he, Bernie denies that Cuba is a completely evil country with no redeeming features. And, uh, and we can't have that because then, you know, then the Democrats would lose Florida. And that was like one of the big anti-Bernie arguments at one point. And then we got Biden instead. We lost Florida anyway. It didn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. And Obama won uh, Florida two times, uh, despite, you know, his kind of literally the exact same comments he, he made. And then the other thing with the embargo that I think is always, always, always worth pointing out, and you pointed it on your piece, and I appreciated it because it's just because in America the embargo is like is like we're like fish in water we're just we don't know it it's just like we, that's all we know um, but like to the rest of the world the embargo is a horrific horrific act and the United States is completely isolated on the world stage I mean they, they had a UN vote um, where like literally every single country in the world except for the United States and Israel and the abstentions of like you know the most insane right wing governments yeah in like, like literally and, they and, like yeah the United yeah. States and Israel were the only no votes. And the uh, the three abstentions were Jair Bolsonaro's Brazil uh, and okay. Colombia, uh, yeah, and uh, and uh, the Ukraine. I know they don't like the definite, Ukraine, art, yeah. definite article. Yeah, should have been nicer to my family if they, you know, wanted me to leave out the definite article. Uh, but right. uh, the uh, but yeah, like countries that are as dependent on the goodwill uh, of the United States as uh, as you know, Brazil and uh, Ukraine uh, and, uh, and, and Colombia were still only abstentions. You know, they, they, right. they could, we, we literally only get, uh, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu at that point is, well, you know, to be the only other country that was willing to join us and actually voting. No, you know, 184 yeah. countries voted. Yes. Of course the United States should, uh, should lift 
uh, should lift this this terrible uh, embargo, and of course we should. It's I mean, like it's a it's a no brainer. I mean, if you take out like pandering to uh, to Miami Cubans, if you take out like insane Cold War grudges and fear of setting a good example for other countries in Latin America that might have been tempted to have their own revolutions, if you take those out of the equation, there's no way to justify having an embargo on Cuba. That it's like, oh, what we uh, like. Uh, you know, China has most favored nation, you know, uh, trading status and uh, and Saudi Arabia, you know, is a massive economic partner to the United States. But, you know, Cuba's human rights situation is just too unacceptable. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. And I mean, it's not like the United States has any problems with human rights issues. Like, <laughs> I don't know, federal agents uh, taking protesters off the street and putting them into like unmarked vans. <laughs> like, no, yeah, or, or, no, I mean, no issues here. The highest here. incarceration rate in the world. Like, you know, like you're, you're exactly you're more likely like, you know, I mean, I don't think, um, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, romanticize Cuba. I think they've accomplished like real things and that are like incredibly impressive. I think it's kind of a miracle that it exists. Uh, given uh, given what what they're dealing with, but you know, but there are things that are you know legitimate flaws in Cuba and its system, and you know, and, and sure, all true, right? But uh, the idea that I, I mean, for like bottom line, if you're a poor Cuban, you're much less likely to end up in prison than if you're a poor American. Uh, and never mind, like like some of the like truly monstrous countries that the United States has absolutely no problem trading with selling guns to supporting and propping up in a hundred ways. So Ben, um, before we let you go, uh, we have one final question for you since, uh, you know, we have a Michael theme throughout the show. Um, it's been one year since he's passed away. And for me, his foreign policy was the best. (laughs) I mean, he helped really break things down in a nuanced way, uh, without, you know, yeah. I guess whitewashing some of the human rights abuses, but also making a robust case for um, why U.S. intervention is a terrible idea. Uh, what what inspired you? Like, what kind of content uh, from Michael did you appreciate the most? Yeah, I mean, that was always a huge part of it. I mean, I, I think back to when I first started listening to the show, which was actually even slightly before I met him. Uh, I, I didn't, I don't, I don't think I became a Patreon until like the day I met him, but the, uh, but, uh, but I, I listened to a few episodes of the, uh, the show before that, uh, cause, cause my friend Mark Warren had, uh, had turned me on to it. And, uh, you know, before I'd often had a really weird relationship with, with leftist podcasts that I would like one would start and I would get excited about it. And I would, I would like listen to a few episodes and then I realized that it started to feel like homework and I would, uh, I would stop, you know, and, um, and there were things that are somewhat comedy podcasts that I'd listened to, uh, that, you know, the, but, um, you know, if that's all you listen to, like, it's like, starts to feel like eating, you know, just eating cotton candy at a certain point. And, and TMBS uh, had like a really unique balance to it because both like it, it was just hitting it out of the park on both ends that on the one hand you had this like graduate seminar level of, of nuance and, and depth, you know, especially to, uh, you know, the internationalist, foreign policy coverage but also you know he's talking about domestic issues and um 
And on the other hand, I mean, it was like funnier than most things that are just comedy podcasts. I mean, like that there were, uh, I mean, there were, I mean, as both of you guys know, I mean, even in, in person, just like casual conversation, you know, Michael uh, was like much, much funnier, you know, than, than most people whose, whose job, his entire job is to be funny. And so, uh, so that was like, yeah, I mean, I mean, it, the, the, have the uh, nation of Islam, Obama and all that stuff. And, and it was just like, you would damn near be pissing yourself laughing, listening to that. But then like the next minute, uh, you know, he'd be, you know, interviewing Adolf Reed and, you know, and, and talking about this like sort of deep critique of like the way I, you know, identity politics, the way class politics, uh, or the next minute, you know, he'd, he'd be doing these like really deep dive uh, foreign policy segments. And, and I will say, I, I guess just one, I can maybe just two specific things. Like one, since we've been talking about Cuba, you know, I mean, that was something he was like, that was the subject he was really passionate about. And, and, you know, like we, we talked about a lot, you know, and, and he had a kind of uh, streak, like when it, when it came to like liberation movements in the global South, you know, like, like, like he, he had a, uh, you know, I mean, he was very emotionally connected to that, you know, that, that, that really meant something to him, you know, whether it was the Cuban revolution, the ANC and struggle against apartheid or, you know, any like, like he, like that, that really meant something to him on a visceral uh, level. Uh, and to, to the point that like, sometimes like we'd be like planning a segment or something, he'd be like, okay, Ben, I agree with you, but like, you know, leave out the nuance, like just say like, you know, they're like, you know, this is, this is a heroic country that's doing amazing things, you know, the embargo, because like, that's the point that we need to emphasize. Uh, and, uh, and I'll also say like, he, on the, he always recommended the autobiography of Fidel Castro. Yeah, yeah he did. He that that yeah. was a great read. He's like, I read and, that for inspiration sometimes. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's very Michael comment. Uh, yeah. And, and yeah, even like his, even his, his sort of um, jokes, having like a little bit of fun with the like absurdities of the American left, you know, he would like tie it back into that. Right. You know, I remember like a, a line, uh, you know, he used a few times to be in conversation. And then I think like once eventually he did on air, you know, it was like if, uh, you know, the problem with the American left is like if we ever had to go up to the mountains like Castro's gorillas. So, you know, like we couldn't do it because people would say it was ableist, you know, to go to go into yeah. the mountains. You know, uh, they didn't have an ADA <laughs> ramp, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, and and I'll also say, like, like on the Latin America, like staying on the Latin America stuff. Uh, he was like, um, when I first started listening to TMBS, there was a point where it was like, oh my god, we're going to do another, like another, like deep dive on Brazil. Like I've 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 heard like ten of these things. It's like I, I oh, man, I, I just want to get back to the other, you know, the other content. Like, like I, I don't know how much. Yeah, bash some Warren, Warren you know, like <laughs> yeah, give, yeah. give me some Warren bashing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But then, like, I listened to Here's so much. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> then I listened to so much of it that, like, it actually got me. It, it like got to me, and then like I. I started to get obsessed with it too. And like to the point where like the first article I ever wrote for Jacobin was actually about Lula and, and the, uh, you know, and the situation in, uh, in, in Brazil uh, and um, the, uh, and, and it was really, um, and again, that that's something that just was viscerally important to him. I mean, I remember one of the last times, uh, not quite the last time, but like the next to last time, 
that I, I spent a weekend with him, you know, Courtney Lashen on his couch in, uh, in Brooklyn, you know, he was, he was getting ready to uh, fly down to Brazil to, uh, to interview him. And, and he was just, like, so excited about that. I mean, he, he, it was like vibrating, you know, it's like he, he, uh, he was so psyched about that. And then like the last time I ever stayed with him, you know, the weekend of the, uh, of that last TMBS live show, just before the pandemic, you know, like he had, um, you know, you were talking about how much you read earlier, which is totally true. I mean, which is funny because he would always make like these little comments, like, like these like kind of self-deprecating comments, like, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm somebody who like dunks on people on podcasts, you know, like, like, you know, like when he's talking to people who, you know, like the real experts or whatever, but then like every time I was ever in that apartment, you know, there were always, there was always some like incredibly heavy reading news halfway through, you know, that, that you could see they left out. And, uh, and yeah, last time I was staying with him, he had in like a place of honor, you know, that, that, now iconic picture of him, you know, with, with, with Lula, you know, like on the bookshelf, you know, in, uh, in his apartment. So, I mean, it, it, it sucks beyond words that, um, you know, that, that we lost him, you know, at 36, uh, 36 years old and, and that like the decades of, of the decades that, you know, should have had that, you know, that we were all expecting to have with him, you know, didn't happen. Uh, it's incredibly unfair, but the, um, you know, I mean, that, that is, um, and, and it's, and it's really awful that like his last months were, you know, the pandemic and staying inside and all of that. But, but I, I am, I am really, really happy that like he, he got to, um, he got to go down to, uh, to Brazil, you know, just, just before all that. And, you know, and he kind of had this, this streak, you know, where he got to interview a lot of his heroes and he got to like meet and, you know, and, and interview Cornell West. And, you know, that's, that's, um, you know, I mean, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't make, it doesn't make it that much better, but, you know, I am really happy about that. Yeah. Ben, thank you so much for, for being part of the show today and being generous with your time. Um, it was really great to have you. Uh, so, Everyone go check out Ben's work, um, not only on Jacobin, where he just uh, published this piece, The U.S. Must End Its Brutal Sanctions Against Cuba, not intervene there, uh, but also check out his podcast, uh, Give Them an Argument. I actually really appreciated your conversation about uh, Cuba on your own podcast, so everyone go check that out as well. Thanks again, Ben. All right. Thanks so much, Anna. All right. All right. Well, are we ready for our next guest? We're ready, baby. All right, let's do it. Joining us now is Daniel Bessner, a historian, good friend of the show, and someone who just launched a new podcast, which I'm super excited about. Just listen to your first episode of American Prestige. Daniel, thank you for joining us. Uh, Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm also ready for you guys. So we're all on the same page here. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. All right. Well, Nando, why don't you ask the first question? Sure. Uh, why, why is it called American Prestige? Well, a genius came up with the idea, actually, in conversation uh, with me. It was actually Nando's recommendation. Uh, but the, the reason that it, that, it, uh, that it stuck out to us is that it's, it's something that, that people regularly say in the foreign policy community. People regularly talk about American prestige. And to Derek and myself, it, it really highlighted uh, kind of the absurdities at the center of the U.S. imperial project that the United States would do what it does um, for prestige 
Association for American Prestige. And so it's, you know, a little bit of a winking title, a little bit of an ironic title. Uh, and of course, the fact that um, not necessarily um, people will not necessarily think that Derek and myself are the most prestigious of commentators until they listen to us. But, you know, there's it's working on a lot of different levels here on the top, middle and the bottom. <laughs> Well, what I love, what I love is that you guys are tackling U.S. foreign policy in a nuanced way, because I think, I don't know, uh, without getting into specifics, I I have issues with the way some people on the left cover foreign policy and more importantly, what goes down internationally in various countries. I think that um, they're tends to be a black and white view of things, which ends up discrediting the left in the way that they engage in these conversations. Um, So the nuance is really, really important. Um, So why don't we start off with your thoughts regarding the Biden administration so far uh, with, you know, what he's done foreign policy wise? Sure. And and that's one of the things, uh, Anna, that we're going to try to do with the podcast, which is it's difficult to really feel foreign policy in the same way one can feel economic policy or social policy or certainly something like healthcare uh, policy or, or welfare policy. And so what we're going to try to do is try to relate these issues to what are, is actually going on in people's lives. It's one of the things that we could do. It's a very complex um, sphere of life. There's decades and decades of nefarious U.S. actions that have un- understandably, I think, uh, engendered a type of conspiratorial attitude amongst many people who analyze U.S. foreign relations, because truth be told, the United States has done a lot of conspiratorial things in the past. As everyone listening probably knows, the overthrow of democratically elected governments, what you all uh, and Ben were just talking about with relations to Cuba. So there's a lot uh, going on. So what we hope to do is sort of uh, bridge the gap between what people in D.C. or what what might be referred to as the blob think and and what people on the traditional anti-imperialist left um, think, which we think there's a lot there to to both um, to the critique coming from the anti-imperialist side, but also related to how people in D.C. talk to build, uh, you know, we were all speaking about Michael Brooks to help kind of build the cadre of people who might one day should a socialist win uh, the presidency. It didn't happen this time, but it may happen in the future who might one day go into office. Uh, And then this brings us to the question, of course, about Biden. Uh, And I think, uh, and we could probably get into it a little bit more deeply, but uh, what I see from the Biden administration is kind of an attempt to manage uh, hegemony, a shrinking hegemony, Uh, whereas it's not a full retreat from, you know, U.S. imperialism, but it is somewhat of a a retreat from the unipolar moment, which is the our lifetimes, essentially, we're all born in the 80s, you know, growing up in the 90s and 2000s, the idea that the United States is the only global superpower. And I think there's a recognition amongst the the blob, again, that this is not going to be the case. It's no longer the case, in fact. So the question is, how do you manage uh, this hegemony? And and as as I uh, wrap up here, I just want to say, I don't think we're witnessing real imperial decline Um, I think we're witnessing some type of imperial retrenchment. Hmm. Now, uh, Biden is a liberal um, and you are a professional historian. One of the last, maybe, um, as we talk about a lot. Um, But uh, you're you're paid to study history and your area of expertise is liberalism and foreign policy. Um, So it's a good moment for you because Biden is a liberal and he's doing foreign policy. What would you describe? How would you describe liberalism as an idea or, or, or an ideology? Um, and, and what is 
kind of the liberal foreign policy? Sure. So I think uh, when I'm talking about liberalism in, in this way, I'm not really referring to, you know, the Democratic Party is liberal or the Republican Party is conservative. Um, but you are right, Nando. I think Biden is a liberal in many senses of the term. What I'm really referring to here is this idea that started to get going in the late 19th uh, and early 20th centuries, which was originally associated with the capital P progressive movement, which was the notion that you would be able to genuinely manage international affairs, that international affairs was a realm of action in which, you know, great men, obviously men, literally, um, at the time, at the turn of the century, would be able to sort of rearrange international politics to fit into ideals. Uh, Woodrow Wilson famously did this with, you know, the idea of, of ethnic nationhood, essentially, that happened at the end of World War One. Uh, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt did it with the type of world making that happened toward the end of World War Two, And all of Roosevelt's successors from Truman on down um, to Biden really think that you could remake the world. So one of the things that I think uh, a left-wing criticism could do, what Derek uh, Davison and I are trying to do on the podcast, uh, American Prestige, is to really attack that worldview, this idea that international affairs is a place to be managed scientifically. It's a place to be managed like like a chessboard. You often hear that metaphor of international affairs as sort of the great game. But the problem is it's, it's not a game. And to view it like that through that metaphor, I think, actually distorts um, what the United States is able to do, has accomplished or not accomplished in the world, and, and what a future left-wing foreign policy might look like, given the realities of geopolitics. Mm. It's like a game of risk, dude. You know, like you, right. you just exactly. move the pieces right. here and you, you take over the Ukrainian steps and then you, you, know, you invade from the north and you do a pinzer movement and then you're good. And one of the things that we see in American culture uh, day in and day out in ways we don't even recognize is that message is, is taught in everything from our high school curricula to our movies to our video games. Americans are taught that they're the actors of history. They're the heroes of history. Uh, and I think that that attitude, which really got going at, again, the turn of the 20th century, but peaked when the United States became an empire uh, during and after World War II, is really damaging. That, that it, it, it winds up distorting what might be considered more organic developments on the ground. And I think you can understand U.S.-Cuba policy, right, in, in that regard. Th this idea that the United States has anything to say, you know, the idea that America uh, should, should manage Cuba in a meaningful way, which has been going on since the 19th century, is, I think, part of this, this fantasy that you are able to manage international relations, the fantasy that ultimately undergirds um, both the liberal internationalist, uh, the liberal internationalism of someone like Samantha Power or Hillary Clinton or Anne-Marie Slaughter, and the neoconservatism of someone like Paul Wolfowitz or Donald Rumsfeld or Doug Fife or Richard Pearl. This notion that you could control politics in that way um, is, I think, misguided. You know, as you're talking, um, I'm thinking about just the kind of education Americans get while they're in grade school uh, about U.S. history and our role internationally speaking. And it, I, I hate to bring this up because I feel bad at how terrible uh, the co-host looked during this interaction, but I thought about Ryan Grimm's interaction with the other person he's been hosting with on The Rising, I, I don't know her name, but how shocked she was uh, in regard to 
what really went down during World War II and Stalin's role in defeating the Nazis, right? And and she was just like shocked because the narrative, the overwhelming narrative in the United States and in our education system is like, and then the United States got involved and defeated the Nazis single-handedly without Tom any Hanks help from it. anyone else. Tom Hanks beat the Nazis. Yeah. And particularly <laughs> yeah. in our lifetimes, this in all of our three lifetimes, this was really the narrative of the 1990s, right? Because without the Soviet yeah. Union... You, this empire should go away, right? You're justifying it for literally two generations because the Soviet Union, they're, they're horrible, they're evil, blah, blah, blah. But the Soviet Union collapses between 89 and 91. And so the empire should come home, right? Uh, but what happened, of course, is that they need a new justification for empire. And that justification winds up becoming uh, preventing genocide uh, for a variety of particular historical circumstances, particularly the United States' failure failure to intervene uh, in Rwanda in 94, and then in the collapsing, the collapsed Yugoslavia in 1995, the anniversary of this, um, I always pronounce it incorrectly, that's for Branica, forgive me, uh, massacre. It. Uh, and so, um, uh, so what, what happened was this new justification for empire became, became the Holocaust, right? Uh, it became the prevention of genocide. And so along with the dissemination of this, uh, of this meta narrative, this literally like Hegelian narrative of history, uh, became a downplaying of what the Soviet Union did. And of course, with regard specifically to the Holocaust, it was the Soviet Union that liberated Auschwitz in January 1945, because the, the death camps, when we think of there were concentration camps where people were concentrated and lots of people died. Don't get me wrong, but there were, there were death camps that were specifically built for extermination. Uh, those were in Eastern Europe because Hitler didn't want them in Germany and for, for a variety of reasons. So they were liberated, the ones that were still functioning at the war's end by the Soviet Union. So literally the liberators, the enders of, of the specific Eastern genocide of the Jews uh, was, was the Soviet Union. And that was totally erased from history. And so you get, it's 30 years later now. And you, so you have a generation of people who are politicized by narratives like that, who were raised on Saving Private Ryan, who were raised on Call of Duty, who have no, you know, Call of Duty actually did have Russian soldiers, but whatever, who were uh, raised without a sense that this was a, an effort that the United States didn't do alone, that it was actually, you know, the sacrifice of tens of millions of Soviet uh, citizens um, and, and, and many soldiers that enabled uh, the, the victory of World War II. But instead, the lesson of World War II was U.S. global power. And I think that's a historically incorrect lesson, though it's the one that people have taken. Yeah. Um, you're known for some of your spicy takes. And uh, one of your spicier ones was that you tweeted out that in a way – you feared uh, liberals more than you feared the people who stormed the Capitol, and you got people were very mad at you about that. Uh, it's obviously a prov like a provocation in a way, but what did you mean by that? Uh, I, I honestly didn't think it was a provocation because the way that I view it is in terms of a power analysis. Um, so who controls the mechanisms of the American security state, both the domestic security apparatus, you know, the surveillance of the NSA, uh, ICE, you know, uh, Coast Guard, uh, the p police forces to, to some regard. Uh, and uh, also, of course, the, the the mechanisms of international security, uh, the international security apparatus, the U.S. military, and 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 all of its various branches and the weapons that it maintains. Um, and so, um, what I was doing was just, you know, the, the analysis between the actual controllers of the, you know, the liberal American state um, versus the the capital rioters. And and so, it really didn't seem like. Um, 
a provocation because at the time, I mean, obviously, and I don't want to underplay, it's obviously very scary for someone to personally experience that if you were in Congress or if you were there. This is not, you know, something to dismiss easily uh, people's concerns. Uh, but when, when you're looking at it from a political perspective, what I was worried about at the time was that um, exaggerating something, which I didn't view as a threat to the Republic, which is literally how it was being presented as, you know, we were, it was a coup attempt, which means uh, the attempt to literally take over the control of the government never really seemed like that to me. Uh, it seemed like something bad, a, a riot, and, and certainly had some unsavory, a very unsavory um, motiv- motivations, racism, xenophobia, hero worship of, of Trump, etc. Um, what I was worried about was the overreaction by the American state, because I think the last 20 years has shown, um, and one might even say, as, as someone who studies the formation of this state in the 40s, you know, since World War II, the last 76 years have shown uh, that the state tends to expand its powers, and particularly the state tends to expand its security powers, and it is often looking for excuses to do so. So what I was just pointing out at the time was that um, this should really be the fear, the fear of this um, enormously powerful apparatus that knows, could know where any one of us uh, is at any moment and through uh, the mechanism of the drone could literally kill uh, anyone in theory um, is something to be really worried about. And, and, and you're, I think I, I was justified in that worry, given the recent moves by the Biden administration to do things like characterize DVEs, I believe it's domestic violent extremists as people who are anarchists or anti-capitalists um, and things that may, make a, 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 you know, might be associated with the left. And I'll just continue here. I just have to say in American history, uh, one of the groups that has suffered, the groups that have suffered most from this empowerment of the security state have been people of color, have been the, uh, the left and have been people who are who are dissidents to uh, the status quo authority? So I want to I want to move over to Cuba. I know we've discussed it quite a bit on the show already, but um, I'm getting I'm getting word uh, regarding Jen Psaki's statements about what the uh, U.S. plans to do, um, and so she basically mentions. Okay, so here here it is. This is ABC News tweeting it out. Uh, Press Secretary Jen Psaki says U.S. approach to Cuba is governed by two principles, empowering the Cuban people, Mm. even though we're still keeping sanctions in place, which cripples its economy. Um, Second, Americans, especially Cuban Americans, are the best ambassadors for freedom and prosperity in Cuba. Right. So this is said that. Yeah, right. So this is the classic Biden. Sorry, I'm moving out of frame. This is classic Biden administration of maintaining hegemony. Um, what there's that's a status quo foreign policy, right? Like the continuation of the sanctions that have been going on, as you talked about for decades, uh, a reliance on, on sort of the Cuban American community to guide U.S. Cuban relations. Frankly, I, I think this points to a general problem is that because Cuba is just not on the top of the list of concerns for the overwhelming amount, uh, overwhelming number of Americans. So in many of these issues, particularly in terms of foreign policy, but also domestic policy, highly organized groups are going to have uh, a significant interest on what goes on. And this has been going on since the the, the, the formation of, of, of lobbying groups in the 19th century, oftentimes along ethnic lines. Uh, and so I think what that that's basically a throwing your hands up. You know, Biden is not going to do a bay of pigs because that would be really bonkers. Um, and he's not even going to do the sort of, sort of drone surveillance that was done in Waziristan, for example, over the last several years. Uh, but he's just going to say, we're going to let things run their course. The United States is going to continue to do sanctions. We're going to continue to do what we've been doing for decades. And nothing's going to change because the United, because <laughs> the Western Hemisphere, since the announcement of the Monroe Doctrine in the 1820s, is that's the United States. Um, and I just want to point out, this is when it's very absurd when people ever accuse the United States of being isolationist, because from 
the, the very beginning of the uh, beginnings of the country's history, one could view, I think, correctly as the expansion westward as a displacement of native indigenous peoples as, you know, an expansionist, non-isolationist foreign policy. And then over the course of the 19th and early 20th centuries, the domination of Latin America and the entire Western hemisphere could hardly be understood as isolationist. So I just think it's important to highlight that historical point because the word isolationism is, is used and misused uh, far too often. Um, you know, like, as we mentioned before with Ben, this is, uh, has been, a uh, you know, our, our little tribute to our mutual friend, uh, Michael Brooks. And, you know, we're asking if there was, you know, if there's one lesson, uh, that you took from him that, you know, that, that you carry with you, um, what that would be. I'd say Michael more than most genuinely had that internationalist vision of a, of a left-wing movement that has, for, for understandable and predictable reasons, fallen out of favor the last few decades. And I always really admired that about him, to really make international affairs a centerpiece of the show in order to, to show his listeners, to reveal to his listeners what was going on in the world. I, I, I always really admired that about him. He really made it a focus. Uh, and I also just admired his, his ability to, you know, make fun of things when they needed to be made fun of, but also his ability to talk to different groups of the left and try to tamp down intra-left fighting when it wasn't necessary, but also to promote it when it was necessary. I thought he had a very good judge of that sort of thing. And, and as Ben said, his loss is just an uh, enormous one. Um, and it's, it's wild that it's been a year. It feels like both no time and all the time. Uh, and, uh, it's just an enormous loss, uh, incalculable, incalculable loss for those of us who knew him and for the movement at large. Yeah, totally agree with you on that. Daniel, 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 thank you for joining us. Little Daniel, Daniel. <laughs> I tried to do like a, you know, a, a, a combination of Danny and Daniel, but anyway, um, thank you for joining us. Uh, loving your podcast so far. So keep it going. <laughs> Um, before you go, what can, uh, the audience expect from the podcast moving forward? Your first episode was on, um, Afghanistan. Uh, what are you planning for the future? So, uh, this week we're going to have a, a podcast episode with, um, my and Derek's friend, Matt Chrisman, where we take kind of this big, long view of, of U.S. foreign relations going back to the founding of the Republic. Um, we're going to have upcoming interviews with other foreign policy experts, uh, someone like Aziz Rana, who's written for M plus one. And basically, um, Listeners could view the show if they, they don't really have the time during the week to pay too much attention to international affairs. What we're going to do, and, and frankly, inspired by what Michael used to do uh, to put cards on the table, is try to go in, in depth on, on issues that are sort of in the news, but give them the, t the type of beyond the, the, the news of the week, a larger understanding of what's going on as we um, interview people to try to figure out what should United States do in the world? What is going on in the world? And what should we on the left be aware of in order to build this sort of utopian internationalist thing that I think is at the, the hearts of, of leftist political thought? Can't wait. Thanks. Thank guys. you, Daniel. All right. See you soon. All right. Uh, loving the show so far. Love these conversations. Um, but now it's time to focus uh, on Michael. Uh, as we've mentioned, it's been one year since he passed away. Uh, but there is one person who's working really, really hard to uh, make sure that his work continues uh, and that his legacy is known. And that's his sister, Leisha Brooks. Leisha, thank you for joining us. Hi, how are you guys? Good, good. How are you doing? Can you hear me? Yes. 
Okay. Yes. I'm in Montana and I've had Wi-Fi issues. So. Whoa, that's cool. Yeah, it is. I've never um, been to Montana. But enough about Montana. <laughs> 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 Are there big mountains there? What's it? What's it like? Is it very there are mountainous? big mountains? We saw a grizzly bear. <gasps> um, oh my god! Yeah, it's it's. Uh, America is is simply too big. Uh, I think is what I'm learning. I mean, I've always kind of felt that, but it's, it, there's so many countries in this country. I know, I know people say that, but when you're driving it, you really feel that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, every time I go to a different part of the country, I, I feel like I'm in a different country. Like the culture is different, the, you know, uh, geological, uh, you know, elements are different. But anyway, I feel like I'm talking about weather now. I'll move on. <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about what you're doing. Um, and it, it's work that I really appreciate because I think that the left is in a pretty, I don't know, tumultuous time. Uh, and Michael provided a lot of clarity. I mean, I can't speak for everyone, but certainly for me in terms of how to think about uh, both domestic and foreign policy, right? How the left... Um, should position itself uh, in incredibly controversial issues. And he was also very much willing to say things that might lead to some backlash, but needed to be said. Like one thing that comes to mind is his willingness to kind of debunk some of the talking points coming from like, let's say a Tulsi Gabbard, right? Who uh, presented herself as like some leftist or some socialist, when in reality she was anything but. So talk about what you're doing with uh, the Michael Brooks Leg Legacy Project and uh, what you hope to accomplish through that work. Yeah, I mean, there's like a, a few different jumping off points there. And and I feel like at the heart of Michael's work was his ability to both like hold many contradictions and nuance and kind of opposing ideas at times, but then also to simplify. And it was really just in Michael, the individual, he was able to kind of create that synthesis. And I think um, in his passing, it's hit people how how much of that he was holding and how much, you know, it keeps coming up again and again, kind of. He was someone who seemed to be able to kind of hold under one big tent a lot of people on the left. And, and we felt that um, a bit of a breakdown um, post his passing. But a, a beautiful thing that has happened is a lot of people have found out about his work and he's, you know, his work continues to go viral. It continues to uh, impact people's education, understanding of situations as they, um, you know, develop even post his passing. I was speaking with a, a man yesterday who discovered Michael um, after Dr. Cornell West had tweeted about his passing. And he spent the last year just watching all of Michael's content. And he uh, was telling me a story the other day, you know, and this is not uncommon. This is something I'm, I'm coming across a lot. So quite simply with the, with the legacy work, uh, what we're trying to do is just put Michael's work back out there. We're re-airing the episode every week. Um, we started with the, the premiere of TMBS, which a lot of people missed. You, you know, you guys probably missed. You know, Ben probably missed. A lot of people, yeah. like, started, yeah. you know, listening later in. So that's been a fun thing to do. I've been uh, interviewing people um, kind of behind a paywall on, on Patreon just because it's a kind of personal project. And, you know, it's, it's nice to have it be, like, a little bit more of, like, a, a private community at this point. But um, uh, that project is – oh, awesome. Thanks, Kale. No relation, but uh, kismet spirit. Um, that that uh, project, and, and I hope you guys will all come on. I've been kind of moving 
chronologically. So we've started with people that knew Michael as a kid and worked his way through his, you know, adolescence and, and teen years. And we're kind of now in college, post-college. But um, that is actually uh, kind of my homework for a documentary we're making about Michael's work and life. Um, and then the last thing I want to say kind of just, you know, both talking about the very literal nature of the legacy work, but then also kind of like what the bigger kind of project and mission is because again Michael was really good at self-promoting he had a big ego he had a lot of like you know he wanted to be this like big star but the other part of him was like very focused on like not creating a cult of personality not becoming obsessed with individual you know like he again it's like these these multiple things he would hold and uh, David Griscom is, is uh, working to work, we're putting together a, a book project. And one of the videos we recently revisited was something where Michael talked about the difference between pity and solidarity. And that was originally taught to us as a Buddhist principle between like pity and compassion. And I've just been coming back to that a lot. Um, when I think about kind of when people say like, I don't know, what's a guiding principle or how to distill Michael's work. And I, I think that, there are a lot of people who actually really do want to stand um, with their fellow humans and they really do want the world to be um, a better uh, place. And I think there's like a lot of judgment and division on the left and between liberals. And I, I've just been having a lot of conversations with people who like oftentimes just don't know and, and they're not necessarily. And, and of course, there are people who do know and are are bad actors, but a lot of people just are like looking for that. And I think one way to kind of engage with people and like a way in is like, okay, is your set of politics something where it's like, this is pity. I feel bad for these people. America needs to do something. Or is it solidarity? How do we stand with them? What actions can we take to truly be aligned? Um, so, you know, solidarity to the people of Haiti, solidarity to the people of Cuba. Um, yeah, I know I'm throwing a lot out there, but it, it's, it's still kind of developing and growing and there's a lot of different elements to legacy work and there's a lot of different elements to michael's work so it's hard to kind of streamline yeah i mean i gotta say that whenever i do a, a decode segment for here on whatever topic uh the first literally the first thing i do every time is go into youtube and just type in michael brooks plus topic name yeah. uh and that's like that's how just i just start you know like that's how yeah. i start my research process for it um and it's 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 just so remarkable like the the breadth of stuff that he that he that he was able to do in such a short period of time um but i wanted to ask about this um the, the project that you're doing for for patrons about you know like you said mentioned the most per, more personal one about like his life and you know his early years and things like that what would be like a um you know just like a little a, a little snippet that you could give people that maybe aren't yet patrons but could be about like that would surprise like say they're fans of michael's but like they would be surprised uh about something that you're you know, you uncovered or that you covered or that you, you know, you, you talked about in this, in this project? I guess uh, one thing that comes to mind is when Michael was little, he would call into this local talk show. And I actually posted the clip of this tape I found on YouTube. So probably a good amount of people did see this excerpt. Michael identifies himself as Steven. Uh, he's a homeschooler. He predicts uh, Bill Clinton winning in the 1992 primary in New York at a time where like no one thought Clinton was going to win. Michael <laughs> also calls Clinton an idiot. And states that he's supporting, um, it's so good. Go. Everyone go look up that clip. It's so good. <laughs> um, so through and through. And so then later I'm talking to Matt Binder, uh, like, you know, several weeks later and, and he goes, 
Did you know that um, Al Giordano, who was the talk show host, and it's a little complicated, of like. Wait, the, that's Al Giordano? Like the Al Giordano? Yes. This is yes. the same guy? Yes. So I had no clue. And I guess that they were like Twitter enemies, and Al was very anti Bernie yes. and like yes. a huge Hillary show. Yes. And I knew none of this. And I, I have to go back and rewatch the interview with Al, which was a really nice interview. And, you know, he was anti nukes. He's kind of this like, you know, kippy guy from where I grew up. I just assumed he was a, a Bernie guy. And I, I bet I mentioned Bernie a bunch. And I, I think I have to go back and watch it, but I think he's kind of weird when I'm kind of just like, well, after, you know, our loss, he's kind of like, but <laughs> no, he, um, he oh like stuck God. the knife in. Yeah. Especially yeah, in 2016. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a, a funny, like, I don't know. That was like a, a surprise. That's not very um, personal to Michael, but I guess that's something fresh in my memory of just like a, a funny uh, connecting the dots. I don't even know if Michael knew that, Al was a person he called into as a kid because it was just kind of like family lore. I doubt he like maybe he, he knew. Probably very really remembered. I mean, how, how old was he? Six. Yeah, he was seven. I feel like my parents were like, "Oh, he used to call into you know WNNZ or whatever like the radio station was." I don't really remember them saying the host's name. I doubt he was like so curious to know about himself. So, and, and also Al had gone on uh, Sam Show on Air America. So there's just like these weird uh, things that are kind of coming up that um you know kind of makes i i guess when someone passes away things like sort of just like make sense in, in some ways in terms of like their trajectory or like the story of their life but when they're such a young person and they're just just beginning to build you're not thinking of it like at the time so it's it's been kind of interesting to go and, and piece together these parts of michael's uh development uh one other quick thing i'll say is i feel like a theme that comes up a lot are people uh telling me that Michael told them he wanted to be president, which I think he stopped saying as much <laughs> at the time TMBS became popular. Yeah. And then also uh, his complicated, uh, I, I call it his first heartbreak, but his his love and then dismay at the trajectory of Obama and his politics is another another big theme. Oh, that's fascinating. That is interesting. Um, I mean, yeah. yeah, I heard a lot of the uh, very justified critique toward Obama, but I didn't know that, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people had high hopes for Obama, especially considering like what campaign Obama was like and how incredibly different he was from President Obama, <laughs> you know? Um, so that's really surprising. Uh, can you share a little bit of that with us? Like what were, sure. what were his thoughts on Obama um, early on? I mean, there's like, there's like, you know, it just, it's a theme that comes up a lot because Michael was in college, you know, he's a little older than me. And I, I don't know, maybe you guys are, I don't know, but who cares? But when <laughs> he was in college, <laughs> um, you know, it was a pretty bleak, it was like, it was like Carrie will make. Yeah maybe like the the yeah. person on you know the left or we didn't really you know i didn't say left it was like you know yeah. liberal or democrat and a lot of his peers are kind of just like reminding me of like this was a really different time like bush was terrifying and people didn't care as much like you know the the whole like boogeyman of of trump compared to like you know, people hated bush don't get yeah. me wrong but like just that the activation around it wasn't maybe as high and they were like, you know, Obama, and obviously some of Michael's heroes uh, have, were very critical of Obama at that time. So it's not like that wasn't part of the equation. But for like your average student, you know, the, there was this really exciting candidate. And, you know, he had such charisma and such passion and, and, and you know, spoke so beautifully about this future. And I think a, a lot of people, I mean, 
I was my, my high school, like we had the afternoon off. We watched the inauguration. People were like partying in the halls. I mean, it was like really joyous event. And so I think it's been, um, and this does not diminish, I'm not trying to like in any way downplay the horrific things that happened during that presidency. I'm, I'm just saying it's kind of like a good reminder to go back and like kind of just be honest about like where we were and how people felt. And um, I think kind of talking to folks about Michael's political evolutions. Interesting because he's always, he always was extremely left. I mean, obviously we have him as a kid criticizing Bill Clinton and like, you know, there, there is this, you know, him as a, as a 12 year old or 13 year old walking around with Fidel, Fidel Castro book under his army. Like he really always had that, but um, debating people about Israel at Shabbat dinners, but anyways, I digress. But, you know, at the same time, the culture was like, um, you know, it was cool to kind of be like moderate and liberal in a way that now it's cool to be, um, you know, yeah. more radical and left. And I, I think it's kind of um, healthy mentally to kind of just acknowledge this and like talk about this, because I yeah. feel like now things have gotten so intense with it's... everyone uh, policing each other about like who's legit, <laughs> who's not. And, you know, it's they, funny it you mentioned that, Alicia, because I, I, last night I watched the new pilot for the HBO show White Lotus and there's like a scene where these like two hot Zoomer girls are at a they're at a resort. In, the, the the show takes place in a resort in Hawaii, like a high end resort. And there's like yeah. these two like really hot Zoomer girls, and they're at their dinner table like kind of chatting amongst themselves like before like the dinner conversation starts. Like everyone's kind of sitting down, and like one of the girls is like she was a neo lib and a neocon, you know? Like they're talking, they're clearly <laughs> talking about Hillary, and the mom's like, sure. "What'd you say? Are you talking about Hillary? You, you know, Hillary Clinton? <laughs> like it's it's like oh, it's cool now, to, I guess, amongst the young people to like bash Hillary Clinton. Well, to women my age, like she's a hero, blah 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 blah. But it's like I love that idea that like the cool Zoomers now, like these like hot girls in bikinis, like she was a neo lib and a neocon you know i'm like, surprised to hear that because i've actually the show's been recommended to me i want to check it out but like even from where i said i feel like getting that like approved in hollywood feels like a feat like i feel yeah. like i literally burned bridges and lost contacts over like being critical of warren not yeah. to mention hillary and people like can't hear i preferred bernie over hillary not i wanted trump to win over hillary like i don't quite understand why that's like a mental breakdown for people but yeah. it seems to continue to be yeah no totally. you know i i haven't watched that show but just based on your description of it nando it's i mean it speaks to what you mentioned Leisha, like the the policing right like the who's a better leftist or who's further to the left and who's more moral or like i feel like a lot of the discourse among the left has kind of devolved into discussions about like, I don't know, posturing and morality as opposed to like a material analysis that I think Michael did a really good job in like you, like his material analysis was always involved in like any story he was covering, especially like, you know, uh, foreign policy. Like a lot of the discussion right now is like imperialism, good or bad. And it's like, no, we're having a moral discussion and sure we can have that discussion, but like, can we talk about like the actual material drivers and like the real motivators and, and factors behind the scenes that, uh, drive U.S. imperialism. And I think he did a really good job in in covering that, but also in covering it in a nuanced way. Like you mentioned the contradictions and like he would always talk about the dialectic, right? Mm -hmm. And I wish I had 
fully understood that when he was alive. Like Mm -hmm. I, he would use the word dialectic and I didn't know what it meant, but I saw him practicing it. You get what Mm -hmm. I'm saying? Yeah. 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 And you knew it when you saw it. It's like Like, porn, you know, like, you know, it when you see it. (laughs) That's what I've always thought about my brother. Exactly. The dialectic Um, is like porn. I, yeah, it's interesting you say that. And I, I, um, I think too, like the, a really dangerous thing with, um, kind of this like, oh, to be this way, it's cool now. Part of that is kind of exciting and like I, I, I'm excited by it, but it's also people can just sense the BS. And so when you're trying to like build like this kind of global um, political project of solidarity, if your um, if your like political project is based on like having the, the right meme or like the most left set of like hot takes and it, it, it it's going to be alienating to other people. And I think that that was essentially something that, you know, I, I truly get emails and messages about it all the time. Like the way Michael was kind of like synthesizing, putting stuff out there, it pulled people into the tent. It didn't push them away. And I think that that's mm-hmm. definitely something that worries me um, that I kind of see as, as a pattern. I had a smarter uh, point to make there. Oh, I know what it was. So uh, we're doing a, a Brooks Books Club as, as part of um, the legacy work, just kind of revisiting some books that Michael enjoyed. And uh, today we were talking to uh, Haman Najdit, who wrote uh, The Ministry of Guidance Invites You Not to Stay. And he lived in Iran for a year in 2012 during uh, Ahmadinejad was in power. And he just kind of wrote about living there and like what that experience was like, obviously it's like, well, you know, a liberal point of view, but it's not like, a, it's not like a super political book. It's just kind of, a, it's kind of like almost like an Anthony Bourdain episode of like, you know, his, his experience there. And I just, there was just something. So um, Michael really responded to that book. And I think, you know, this is like a, a piece of literature that just kind of like makes Iran like a real place where like people um, sometimes get in trouble with the morality police and sometimes don't and people drinking's illegal, but they still get booze and there's disagreements about this and it just humanizes. And I think that again, was just like such a, a thing that Michael was doing, which was kind of like um, humanizing uh, one, one more thing, just cause I, I, everything's kind of percolating right now, but I, I just got an email from, uh, a fan who lives in Gaza and he said Michael inspired him to look outside of Israel and Palestine and he was learning all about Brazil and Venezuela and that struggle and I, I just think that by kind of um, bringing just so many different uh, struggles and, and just kind of putting them in just like a very grounded real uh, framing it was inspiring people to just feel solidarity in, in such a like beautiful interconnected network. And I, um, I really hope that uh, your guys work, work grows, you know, Danny Bessner's new show, Ben Burgess, all, all of your, Michael's kind of uh, larger web of people uh, you guys are able to continue to uh, put out that kind of content. And cause I I'm, I'm seeing in real time, the amount of people that Michael one individual was able to influence in a, in a positive way is like, he didn't know. I didn't know. It's, it's, it's really, um, I don't really quite have words for it. I just don't, I'm just not as good as him. I'm just not yeah, as good. That's what I was going to ask offline. I was going to talk to you. About tell that, tell me, about it. Just remind me. Yeah. <laughs> You'll never be as good as him. <laughs> no, I mean, you don't want to like deify and make it like St. Michael, no. but I think, I think, you know, it just, he, for whatever reason had some multiple burners on at once. And I think, you know, yeah. it, it's inspiring to do that. 
his ability to like very clearly disagree with someone without like without it leading to a major conflict was i mean masterful um mm-hmm. i'm too fiery like i I, I agree with you, Nando. Um, not about you, but more, mostly about me. Like, there's a certain temperament <laughs> that he brought to the table that I lack personally. Um, but I am who I am. I can't change it. Uh, yeah. I'll try to kind of keep it under control for this show. <laughs> but, <laughs> mostly because I don't want to be reprimanded. But, um, but yeah, I, I think that he had this incredible ability of bringing people together and engaging in conversations where a, a disagreement might be front and center. But he didn't, you know, divide people based on those disagreements. He tried to find ways to persuade, to bring people into, you know, this broader coalition. Mm-hmm. And I really respected that. That was something that I was trying to learn from as much as possible. What um, what would you say? I know that you had a lot of political discussions with him that oftentimes would get fiery. I mean, you've opened up a little bit about that in the past. Um, what would you say, you know, you learned from Michael you know, politically, like what's one thing that like he persuaded you on maybe? Huh. You know, it's a little, I'm trying to think of like one concrete example. I think more, I think Michael had just like bigger, wider thinking. And I think I was like quicker to respond to like, you know, if there was like one case of injustice or one person was upset about this, I think that I kind of have that tendency. So I think a lot of what we like, kind of would uh debate about would be like the merits of certain like maybe social movements like he would be kind of a few steps ahead of me and seeing how they would be co-opted to basically make us all feel other from each other and I you know it it's kind of hard to articulate because some of these things I don't want to like name a certain one because it's it's hard it's it's uh yeah, for some reason, not not one example is coming to mind of something like, oh, Michael really changed my mind on that. But I just think that without Michael, I don't know until this year when like just like TikTok popped off and the, like there's just been kind of like this whole like wider uh, education around like I grew up with a sibling who was just so anti-imperialist so um aware of like so many parts of the world so this isn't really something he changed my mind about but I just um always grew up having just this uh person in my life who was just so focused on the international and just seemed to have like this very strong grasp on how people's lives were in different regions in different states in different um countries and just kind of that was always part of the conversation. Um, so that's kind of sort of broadly what what comes to mind. Like, I don't know if I would have like, had, like, you know, I just always knew like what was up in Cuba. Like, I just always knew like what was going on in Haiti. I knew how the Clintons were involved in what was going on, you know, like from a young age. And I don't know if I would have, you know, I, ha- I had some really cool lefty radical teachers. I had a, a, a like English teacher who had a crush on Hugo Chavez. Like I had some unusual people who are part of my education track that that's like not the norm, but um, just day to day to have Michael um, in my house. Um, I don't And is that funny? The anecdote about the teacher um, was definitely a, a big influence. People remember Hugo Chavez in the latter years, but, you know, I think a huge part of his appeal in Venezuela in the early years when he attempted a coup d'etat in the early 90s as a trim buff, uh, you know, like military, uh, you know, I think he was like a sergeant or colonel. I don't know what, he, what rank he was, but like uh, 
you know, he he had his appeal. I don't, I don't, I don't blame. Nanda was the English teacher. Sorry to have you. Yeah, that was me. Sorry, I was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, I I hope that was concise. I kind of just jotted down a bunch of stuff, and I um, didn't really get it super in order. But I feel like that hopefully oh, gave y'all a, a good taste of of kind of what we're trying to work of on. Of course. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Everyone, please go check out the Michael Brooks Legacy Project Patreon page. Um, become a patron and um, support this work because it's important. I mean, and I agree with you, Nando. There have been so many stories that, you know, broke following his passing where I, I want clarity on the issue. And I'll yeah. look it up and... He's just covered so many topics, like the variety of topics that he delved into was pretty impressive. So um, thank you for keeping that work alive, Alicia. It means a lot to me personally, um, means a lot to us. Um, but more importantly, it means a lot to individuals who are, you know, trying to learn more about politics and more importantly, the left. They're not mm -hmm. going to get that education in like traditional schools in the U.S. And I think what Michael did was such an important service. Mm -hmm. um, so thank you for keeping that alive. Yeah, I, I think also this is Revolutions doing some cool stuff, too. I know I just listed a bunch of left. There's a lot of good people doing stuff. So, yeah. you know, check it out. Thank you, guys. I appreciate right. you. Taking Thanks for time joining us, Alicia. All right. Bye. Th Thanks, thank you for joining us. Have a good one. All right. Um, so let's uh, let's uh, talk a little bit about Michael on a more personal level. Uh, Kale Brooks is joining us now. No Kale, relation. How you doing? Yeah, again, no I, have, I have to. It's I mean, it's it's a little strange, but of course, it's like also a massive honor uh, when someone's like, "Were you related to Michael?" And it's like, no, uh, I just <laughs> I just, I was his producer, uh, which is not quite family, but um, I I want to just. Uh, say thank you again to Ben, to Danny, to Leisha, um, that uh, we really do appreciate you joining us today for the show and then also sharing your anecdotes and your stories. And um, and kind of the part of this is that I wanted everyone to kind of talk about what um, in what ways Michael kind of affected their politics, because something that I keep coming back to or I have been keep coming back to since last year is something will happen and I'll say, you know, among the many tragedies uh, that Michael's death is, you know, if only we had someone who would be able to, like, speak so cogently or so brilliantly on this thing that, like, we lost someone who was, who was so multifaceted in his talents. Um, and, uh, and then it, it, you know, to Nando's, to Nando's point earlier of, like, it, you know, it, wanting to, to be as good as him and knowing that we're not, I mean, that I feel that all the time. And that's, like... In some ways, it's been a motivation, but, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, I think I said a year ago, you know, in the tribute that, um, you know, it's, it just became so much more clear to me that we have to step up, that we have to, you know, to fill in what Michael uh, left us because he was doing it so much better than everyone else. Um, and that... Well, Kelly, uh, you're still for, young. I, you know, I'm old and I'm not going to change. I'm about like, I'm tapped out. I'm about as good as I'll be. You know, you're still young. You still got a lot of room for potential growth. I, I, I think you could. I think you could step up, dude. Uh, that's. I mean it. Uh, I no, no, no. There's. I mean, like that's very flattering, but like there is certain qualities about Michael that are just truly irreplaceable. That like 
I can read as much as I want to read and will never be as like in the moment witty and funny as he was. I'll never be like, there's certain aspects of just the personality that um, like, I just think are just so important to how people understand what the left is um, that like the words I keep coming back to, or have been coming back to is that like, yes, Michael was brilliant. Michael was funny, but he was kind. And like that's Yeah. It's, super kind. But it, also salty in all the right ways. Yeah. Like let's not let's not bury that because okay, I'm I'll, I'll say this. What I saw from Michael outside of um how intellectual he was and how funny he was, there was a lot of courage in what he was willing to cover, honestly, when he knew that there would be insane backlash because he did the work, right? Like if you do the work, if you do the research and the reading and you have a firm grasp on whatever issue you're talking about, sometimes you realize things before everyone else. Mm -hmm. And like I gave the example of Tulsi Gabbard because I remember doing the work on Tulsi Gabbard and I'm like, this woman is a fraud mm -hmm. and it's just so abundantly clear if you do the work. But the only other person who did that was Michael. And he had the courage to speak out uh, regarding her, you know, her anti-regime change rhetoric and what was really behind it, you know, because she did position herself as like this anti-war candidate. Um, but it wasn't really based in any principled ideology, right? Like every argument she had was really about, oh, it's going to be a waste of resources. Uh, these forever wars are not good for our troops. Like, and And he was just able to kind of like debunk the nonsense mm -hmm. and did it fearlessly. And and he got, look, I remember those days. Like, I remember the backlash I got. I remember the backlash he got. But he mm -hmm. kept doing the right thing over and over again. And I just, I really, really appreciated that courage from him in addition to uh, how smart he was, how clear he was, and also how funny he was. And also just, I can remember moments where something would come up on the show, whether it be this show or TMBS, where he clearly didn't know about that topic. And he would just say like, yeah, I, I don't actually think I can comment on this because I don't know something about it, which speaks to the fact that when he was speaking, he probably had in fact done so much of the research that like the amount, yeah. like it wasn't just something he was pulling out of his ass. Like some of it, of course, like he had, you know, incredible political intuitions and, uh, and instincts and that matters a great deal. And so he could, you know, respond to things as they were coming up, but he also said, I need to know what I'm talking about. And uh, doing this show just for like a year and a half, it's really tough to like to follow the news. I don't want to watch the news ever. Like, but I have to because like I have to have an opinion on it if I come on screen for something. Uh, but in like, you know, talking about Cuba and I'm like, oh, God, I, I wish I had finished reading that book on Cuba, you know, two years ago that, you know, I never finished. And it's like, but Michael had, you know, taken so much time to, to to take that in and to understand the world around him and, and then matched it with like a, a socialist worldview um, so that, you know, not only was he articulating a politics, but he was doing it by, you know, actually, re you know, relating it to real events, uh, real, uh, you know, research, real information. Um, 
And that's like, for a lot of people, that's, you know, in the way that Alicia was saying, I mean, like, that's a lot of the way that most people understand the world. They don't get it in the big, heady kind of, you know, from the, you know, the God's eye view that, you know, Marxists sometimes are like accused of seeing the world in just these giant macro categories. Like he really did try to understand, you know, how are things happening really on the ground in people's lives across the world? And then trying to understand how does that fit in with my political beliefs? And, um, and again, I think that like that's a quality that the left is sorely lacking. That um, I think the left, like previous generations, did have that, and I think Michael knew that. And that's like he like he spent so much of his time training in that uh, in that process and in, in that legacy. Um, and and again, I think it's worth stating this because like that's effectively what the left should be doing. Like that's the kind of like aspects of Michael that we need to be recreating constantly. I think. Yeah. So why don't we sh- share our favorite um, Michael? Well, I mean, to say favorite Michael videos, I think, is a strong way of stating it because, I mean, I, I can't pick a favorite, um, but I-, I did choose a video to share with you all um, that I think does a good job kind of demonstrating what I've been referring to regarding his like nuanced takes mm-hmm. on controversial issues, um, foreign policy, things like that. Um, so should I go first or do you guys want to go first? I don't mind. No, you sh- we should do it. We should start with that one. So I'm going to... Right, okay. Let's do it. Let's watch. There's a countervailing tendency where, you know, if somebody's opposed to U.S. interests, we have to sanitize them. We can't have an intellectually rigorous conversation. I think that doesn't work. Because I actually mainly, even just frankly, for if you wanted to look at it in terms of propaganda purposes, I don't think that kind of bullshitting about everything works. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would actually make a really hard and fast distinction, frankly, between um, the enormous complexity of something like China, which we just need to learn how to be adults about, um, Mm -hmm. which is going to push back against uh, the new Cold War, fear-mongering, war-mongering attempt, also combine the fact that that push against China is delusional. I mean, how are you going to, how much are you really going to bully a rising power where your entire supply chain relies on them? Mm -hmm. Uh, And that it is very important to understand how China looks at the world, how they conduct their foreign policy. And then at the same time, I think it's ridiculous and foolhardy to make excuses um, of where China, you know, abuses rights or whatever else. I just, again, I just think it's silly. And also you have to look at the entirety of Asia in the Middle East, um, you know, there's big variants here in terms of Iran, Syria, wherever else. But, uh, and again, abuses committed by these various governments and leaders like Assad. But the main story is pushing away U.S. interventionism, U.S. imperialism, which is extraordinarily aggressive in the Middle East, obviously. That's it. That's everything. That's it. It's simple. It's simple. It's so simple. And some for some reason... The left has difficulty in doing something simple. U.S. intervention, U.S. imperialism is bad. It does not lead to any positive outcomes. At the same time, when you're needlessly sanitizing human rights abuses, all you're doing is losing people who might be open to your arguments, right? I mean, uh, That was kind of part of the reason why I was a little more willing to kind of disregard the left prior to watching Michael's content, because there was like a lack of honesty about things. Right. There was a lack of nuance. And so and I don't like if you're 
working in media as a member of the left, it's not your job to whitewash things to prevent U.S. intervention, right? Your, your job is to inform people. So like whenever I'd see someone who identified as a leftist and then like needlessly whitewashed things or brushed human rights abuses under the rug or pretended like it didn't exist, I was like, I don't know, is this credible? Because this is not a nuanced look at what's really going down. I think that you can very clearly, and Michael did this on a regular basis, acknowledge those things, not insult the people who are being abused, by the way. Um, And then at the same time, give very specific reasons why U.S. intervention would be awful and would actually further exacerbate the issue or the problems for the citizens of whatever country you're talking about at any given moment. Anyway, that's what I really appreciated about Michael. He had the ability to discuss these things in a real way with all the contradictions that exist, with all the nuances that exist. And he brought me into the left as a result of that. Mm -hmm. He didn't push me away with judgment, like constant judgment on the left right now. Like it's not helpful. Right. And and so I I really appreciated that about him. And I think that clip is a is a good way of, you know, demonstrating what I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think I mean, the left, I mean, broadly, I think it's, you know, in some ways, uh, the left is is maybe more healthy on this issue than it has been historically on the issue of um, imperialism that I think the vast majority of the left sees imperialism as bad. But then I think for a lot of it, it can become very flat. That's just American empire is big and bad. And, you know, when something bad happens in the world, it's because American empire is big and bad. And, um, and what I think Michael brought to this that was really necessary is, is what you're talking about is this nuance and um, the focus on interests of trying to understand who is doing what, uh, you know, whose interests are being served by, you know, what means. Um, and, and when you try to understand that, instead of just kind of a, a flatter picture of what's going on, it then actually helps us generate political solutions because then we can identify exactly who is actually benefiting, um, who is actually operating. Um, and, uh, and then we can actually, you know, appreciate, uh, I think it, it, it both, political solutions within the U.S., but then also try to understand political solutions internationally of, um, you know, when a, a population, um, you know, for instance, like it's, you can hold two things in your mind at the same time that like the U.S. has in fact and continues to have, um, you know, what we call imperial domination and imperial um, power over much of Latin America, for instance. Um, I think it's also fair to say that, you know, it's not quite the same hold over, over the region that it maybe had 50, 60 years ago. And we had Greg Grandin on to talk about this actually last Wednesday or not Wednesday, last Saturday. Um, but, you know, and then we can understand, you know, how uh, the domestic ruling classes or the, the, uh, well, yeah, the domestic ruling classes in these countries are, you know, exploiting, dominating, oppressing their own populations and how working class people are fighting against their own ruling classes in addition to American uh, power and influence and, and collaboration with local ruling classes. Um, and trying to understand and hold all these things in your mind simultaneously is like, it's tough. And, you know, it's, there's a lot of important regional variances and, and specificities. Um, and I think Michael really, you know, went the distance in trying to understand all of this. Yeah, I mean, the, the, totally. his coverage of Brazil is a good example because, there, the, I mean, the, the impulse on the left that you guys are talking about 
I think comes from a somewhat understandable place that like you're being barraged by so much propaganda um, and so much, you know, so much misinformation from the mainstream press whenever it comes to anything foreign affairs that, you know, it's so overwhelming that you there's a tendency and I I think kind of somewhat understandable impulse to just like discredit the whole thing, you know, that like if it's in the New York times, it's a lie, you know? Um, And uh, I think that his coverage of, of, of Brazil, like Lava Jato, which got like unbelievable amounts of coverage in, in the mainstream press, uh, you know, 60 minutes, uh, all that stuff. I mean, he, he was able to process that, that amount of propaganda. um, And then, uh, regurgitate it back in a uh, forceful, clear, and, you know, without acknowledging certain realities on the ground that are quite messy about, like, what it means to govern a country like Brazil, given the historical context of the way the Brazilian state um, was constituted um, and organized, um, you know, that, that, like, yes, of course, corruption exists, you know, like, to, to, to say it's like some clean, um, you know, uh, perfect uh, democratic state is, is ridiculous. Um, but to understand, to, to keep the the sort of moral clarity and the and the overall strategic clarity to to cover that in a way that is that is robust, uh, forceful, and clear. And I mean, another good example. I think it might even be from this this clip, if like a little later. But like, you know, when he's talking about Venezuela and the amount of propaganda that comes out uh, in the mainstream press about Venezuela, but like, you know, about their like how it's like a narco state and all that stuff. And he's like, well, you know, there is an element of the fact that you know the regimes in Venezuela did have done some strategic <laughs> what we would call maybe public private partnerships with like mm-hmm. narco elements is there is there also like a reason why that why Venezuela hasn't is that one of the reasons why Venezuela has not been toppled by uh by the United States probably you know like it's a it's a it's a clear understanding of of that phenomenon that is um you know that it's just that it's just one step beyond you know the the sort of barrage of propaganda that we that we are getting from the mainstream press, which is just, it's it's overwhelming. Like if you're not kind of constantly, um, uh, you know, reading about like this kind of the, like any specific place, um, it's it's just so hard to to sift through what is fact and what is and what is just pure fiction. Um, but he was just able to do it. I mean, he was just able to do it because he was better than most. Yeah, Linda, how about you set up your clip? Sure. I mean, I think my clip is a good example of, again, an, a clarity of analysis, um, a rigorous uh, kind of Marxian application um, of, you know, all that he had learned and on all that he had understood, a sort of perfect way to um, apply the, what you know, a, a very clear and specific analysis um, to a whatever controversy is happening in, in the current moment. And I don't even know like what, I don't even remember like what specifically this was. I just remember it was like some debate between Nathan Robinson and Glenn Greenwald. It doesn't really matter. Um, the point is like his, his response to it, his, his ability to sort of apply a very clear and specific um, and rigorous analysis um, I thought was just, was just uh, absolutely perfect. Glenn is right in terms of what he's pointing to vaguely, but actually the specifics there are wrong. It would not be a a fully economically populist policy at all. And the thing that always the basic dividing line, please watch Dustin Guastella and I go into this, is the relationship to organized labor. 
Organized labor is the actual fulcrum of alternative power to capital. These guys don't like, you listen to Steve, and this is where if you listen to Steve Bannon or, or, and you look at the policies pursued by these guys, it's country club bullshit. They hate labor unions. Tucker Carlson makes a ton of individually discreet, accurate points about inequality and middle-class disappearing, whatever, always turns it into xenophobia and race baiting and occasionally a modest policy push, never labor. So the people who are disingenuously saying that, that Glenn Greenwald is promoting Steve Bannon's racism, that's disgusting, stupid, embarrassing, don't do it. And Glenn, in my view, is mistaken because, yes, if the most economically populist uh, perspective that was being put forward uh, by someone like Steve Bannon was implemented, it would basically mean that there would be some decent uh, stuff on trades, decent stuff on infrastructure, and some okay taxation. And that's fine. And that is in no way equivalent to the Bernie Sanders, Ilan Omar, robust for real pro-labor, single-payer agenda. And we listened on Red Scare, Bannon doesn't support single-payer, at least as of now. So just does not hold up, right? And that is really the key thing. Then the other two parts of this debate that I want to pay particular attention to. One, look, I think that it is unfair to Crystal, and I've seen and continue to watch the show. She's robustly articulating her points on things like police defunding. She's doing it. Third and fourth point. Uh, well, actually, I mean, okay. One more thing on Glenn. Again, Glenn is attacked constantly by people who you're going to need to reveal a, 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 a Lava Jato and a Snowden in order to approach the contribution he's been on. Okay. I have nothing but respect for Glenn Greenwald. And I also, in that same interview, he called Tucker Carlson's response to the BLM uprising was grotesque. And I think he is very consistent in a view that he has of inside outside politics. That's not our view. We have a view about capital versus labor. And that is a big, you know, substantive difference. And I think it's actually even reflected in some of the conversations, the great conversations. I mean, Glenn broke the Lula story. I cannot emphasize how big a contribution that is. But he still, you know, I could look at the whole Lula story through the lens of basically top-down class politics. And I wasn't interested in any corruption narrative, right? And I'm not saying, I'm not even making a question of who's right or who's wrong. But that's a fundamentally different way of looking at politics. Mm-hmm. And I think that that, you know, a lot of things get conflated under that umbrella with left wing politics. But if you have a serious material class dimension that anchors labor, ironically, for all of the dumb accusations of class reductionism or whatever, it does basically eliminate right wing populism because right wing populism posits all sorts of imagined national communities and various other fantasies and does not have a labor analysis. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think that that is um, just a perfect example of someone who is able to take whatever controversy of the day 
uh, it doesn't even, I, I don't even remember what it, what, like what the actual specifics were, but applying... yeah, just every buzzword, every, every trigger word, <laughs> word on right, the left yeah. came in that clip. <laughs> right, exactly. But it's like, it's, it's, it's when you, when you, when you apply a Marxist lens to, uh, to, you know, your critique of whatever it is that is happening, you become much more precise in your, in your analysis of that thing. And you recognize that, you know, other people have a different critique and it just causes them to have po certain political differences. You know, it leads them down a different path, you know, and a perfect example. And this is something that we talked about a lot with, with the Lula thing is that like, you know, he sees it in the lens of, of class politics, not in any other lens. In other people like the, you know, there's a like good government type liberals and things like that, which, you know, they might be, they, they would be offended by certain things that, that Lula did while he was in power. Um, and he just sees it, he, he just saw it through the lens of a, of a, of a class politics. And within that lens, you know, Lula was the guy that did the most. So, so that, I mean, I just found like everything about that ability to take a, a very heated debate in which most people start talking past each other, um, and then apply a very coherent and specific and precise analysis to it. So I, it's just something that I always try to do whenever I look at something. I try to take a step back, remember my training, like, uh, like Obi-Wan, you know, he's like my Obi-Wan in my ear. Um, and, uh, you know, use the force Luke. And then, you know, I'll be able to, I'll be able to try strive to have as an, an analysis as precise as that. Yeah. I mean, my clip, um, it's actually not too dissimilar. It's, dissimilar enough um you know i didn't totally spike the football on this on producing today but um <laughs> it's late over there dude yeah uh, it's almost midnight this is i mean but to, dude it's almost midnight <laughs> yeah um this is pre-taped if yeah. you can't tell uh <laughs> i don't know if we said that um so sorry i appreciate any super chats that you're sending <laughs> yeah they're now. just like why aren't they responding to me <laughs> <laughs> yeah um uh but but I think like Nando's point is exactly right that it's like it's politics is so much about how you actually frame what's going on through a certain lens and, and I think that's what Michael did so well that like and again I think he 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 understood that he was among um, a particular tradition among uh, particular uh, like it wasn't something he invented but it's something that you know. It's, when you're on the left, like you have to develop your socialist politics and your socialist worldview because it's so counter to just kind of what the status quo is in society. Um, and he did that um, and and then was able to actually articulate like what's going on presently and what the left has to do in response to it. Um, so this is just a short excerpt. It's actually from Weekends. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it's just one of these little gems that I came across earlier watching through clips, um, of just like the thing that he would just kind of say as a comment, this wasn't a segment, it's just something he said. So that basically the technology really built into the technology is the incentivizing of all of the cruelty, gossip, nonsense, and drama, and the kind of ultimate irony of seeking the intensity of that experience as just being, I mean, it happens outside, it happens across all politics, but it is really specifically antithetical to the left because it's completely antithetical to a culture of either, you know, frankly, like openness, strength, uh, forgiveness, change, uh, and also just sort of like being like fully paid up 
hopefully a you know like grown up on some level and and just you know the complete lack of humility i think too um is mm-hmm. also gross because again i think like ironically if it was building a culture where people could be much more open about all of our you know where they're relevant most of them you know you know aren't because like privacy is obviously an obvious thing but like you know, people's growth, people's mistakes, people's transgressions that everybody, I'm so sorry to say, has done. Um, you know, it, it it creates like this, this like punitive, insane madhouse atmosphere where it, there isn't an incentive structure to to grow. Um, so and that's I think so it, true. It cuts yeah. across all, you know, all areas. Um, and I think, you know, Taibi definitely obviously uh, identified uh, some of it. Um, and, you know, I, I, it was funny, you know, I, I asked Noam Chomsky about it and I tried to ask him beyond that article on TMBS. Cause I didn't want to sort of, it's a big question. And it's like so many of these things, like you try to get them outside of like various silliness on Twitter and get to like the real meat of things. And he was just like, yeah, the left better have a substantive commitment in this case, to free speech. And the only reason this is even a question now is because it's happening not only to the left, historically, the left has always been the one, whether it's state or private censorship, that has been primarily uh, threatened. So, you know, yeah, it's not just like a question in so many ways of like not producing all these stupid and toxic cultures. It's also really recognizing that it's just antithetical if you actually have an appetite for still, you know, trying to do the big things. Yeah, it's just the breaking through the noise saying like our politics, our commitments and like our actions, how we actually exist on the left and what we, what we're doing, whether it be the day to day, week to week, like you have to have certain goals in mind. You have to have certain frameworks in mind. Um, and, and like, that's why you're doing it. And, uh, and there's a million incentives uh, in our status quo that is pushing us in an opposite direction. And that's why, you know, just one, it's one more reason of like Michael being such like a beacon for like sanity and like being able to like reorient people towards like, no, this is what we're going towards and we have to stay focused on the goal. His, his uh, Lafayette talk, um, I go back to so much, so, so often. Um, uh, I feel like he had reached like his apotheosis with that talk. It was like one of the last things he did. Um, and I, f- I feel like he had reached like his full maturity and potential and had gotten so comfortable with his arguments and so confident with his arguments um, that he was able to talk to a bunch of college kids and just be like, yeah, yeah, you know what I mean? Like he was so cool in that in that clip because he wasn't talking to the TMBS audience. He was talking to just regular college kids. It was a different it was if you notice, he's like a little different than when he talks to the TMBS audience, yeah. which is just like, you know, it's a. It's a committed audience. They're they're coming back week after week. This is like uh, he's out in, in a new and I, I like my my thing that I always think about um, is like he was so confident at that point in his ability to talk to someone and convince them um, if they were kind of predisposed in some way um, was that he did, wasn't able to go on on Rogan. 
because I know he was convinced that he could con- like he could convince Rogan to just become like a full on like Marxist socialist. Like if he just if he just got on his show, that he would just convince him, and that would then turn like you know millions more people uh, <laughs> into that. Uh, but I, yeah, I think about that a lot. Yeah, I mean it's it's like it's a really funny anecdote, but it's also like it just speaks to the fact. I mean, we lost Michael like before his peak. Like yeah. he, he was not even in his mm-hmm. prime and, and that's, I think, um, I mean, it's, it's really, it's horrific, but it's also like, that's what we have to like, keep in mind, like that what Michael was doing so well is what needs to be emulated, uh, because that's what works. I mean, like it's just, it just the, the like amazing outpour that, that, um, you know, immediately. And then over the past year that Leisha has been talking about, uh, if, you know, people that are connecting with, with Michael's work, it's just, it's proof of concept. Um, so yeah, very, yeah. I mean, again, very honored to be able to, um, to carry on this project that, that Michael was so instrumental in creating. I mean, just all of Jacobin YouTube, like this was, I was bugging Boscar for like two years before I jumped on to like do like video stuff on, on, you know, for Jacobin, I was just some, I was just some, I mean, some I was zoomer. a zoomer. Yeah. Well, no, I was, I'm like, I'm, you, yeah, I'm a cuss millennial. No, I'm like, like I'm you white, you Ben Affleck. No, this is, <laughs> uh, okay. But either way, I, you know, was like bugging Boscar, like, come on, let's do something. And then it wasn't until finally, uh, Michael was like, Boscar, come on, you guys got to have a YouTube channel. And <laughs> <laughs> so then like Boscar's like, okay, fine. And I have this like guy this cuss millennial that like you know really wants to produce it so um <laughs> been bugging me for two years yeah. fine he claims he's your it. little brother yeah. you know his name's something brooks i don't know he's got a weird name but uh yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh pretty much verbatim um but no i mean i i owe all of this to michael so um yeah i mean it's it's a tremendous amount of gratitude um and um you know, happy to, to continue doing it. So same here. Yeah. Same. All right. Um, that was one hell of a show. Thank you to everyone who's watching. Thank you to, uh, Kale for doing what he does every week, getting everything together for us so we can, um, make our arguments and share our perspectives with you all. Um, please support Michael's work by going over to the TMBS legacy project, Patreon page, please become a patron, a patron. And, um, if you haven't already subscribe to this channel and also subscribe, uh, if you haven't already to the Jacobin magazine, because it's fantastic. Um, thank you guys for, for doing this with me. Um, I can't think of anyone else, uh, that I would rather have these conversations with. Um, so I'm really happy to be here with you guys and everyone else have an awesome weekend. Uh, we will see you soon with another episode of weekends. I should just mention, we actually, we're going to be off this upcoming week, but then we'll be back and we have a very big guest. So watch reruns or whatever. This is, you know, it's, uh, We'll be back and it'll be good. Good chance to, yeah, good chance to catch up to any episodes you guys missed. So watch the old Michael ones. All right. right. Yeah. They were better. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) All right. No, stop being so self deprecating, Nando. You're great. Um, And (laughs) anyway, love you guys. Have a great weekend. We'll see you soon. Bye bye. Bye.